Blog Talk Radio. going on 
outside of the U.S. as it relates to the conditions of African people and oppressed communities within this part of the U.S. We'd like to bring Brother Opie on for him to share with us in terms of his works on why it's such an appeal and how we can support it. So right now, let's first and foremost introduce Brother Opie and invite him to or welcome him to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Opie. Good evening. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. Yeah, recently um, there is an appeal that has been going throughout the community and throughout the various um, regions of the U.S., as well as throughout the world, where there is a call for fighting this um, uh, pandemic that's going on in the U.S., as relates to African people and oppressed communities as well. And we talk mm-hmm. about a period that deal with embracing Cuba. You as yes. the architect, one of the major architects of this particular creation of this work, where you talk to our listening audience, why such a call for a for this appeal at this particular time? Well, um, I have to say in the beginning, um, it's always a pleasure and always an honor to be on with you. And um, yes, it is timely. And uh, I'm not comfortable accepting any credit. I sincerely feel I don't deserve. It's simply a question of historical responsibility and what we're obligated to do in the space and time we occupy the planet. Um, What it is is in my capacity as the external relations officer of the Zimbabwe Cuba Friendship Association, we came up with this appeal and I worked with in conjunction with Abeku Dada, who is the founder of the Organization of African Doctors, which is an organization that all the students of African descent that are at the Latin American School of Medical Sciences in Cuba, who are studying to be doctors to go back to the 55 nations in Africa and numerous parts of the diaspora they came up with this idea to create this organization. And uh, as we're having this conversation tonight, our young brother is part of the Corona pandemic response team, where he, and he's still completing his residency at Grady Memorial Hospital. So, um, yes, we decided to push this appeal. And the appeal has, um, and it's an appeal, not a petition. Let us make a distinction between appeals and petitions. Petitions target random individuals. Appeals focus on organizations, institutions, and networks, and individuals who have an extended track record of service through different organized formations and vehicles. So in the tradition of David Walker's appeal, we come. In the tradition of the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey's appeal to the League of Nations in 1923, we come. In the tradition of Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois' appeal in 1947 to the United Nations that former First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt attempted to sabotage, ironically, when she was on the board of directors of the NAACP, we come. In the tradition of Brother Malcolm's attempted appeal that he never got a chance to get off the ground, thanks to the New York Police Department, the FBI, and the CIA, and other entities of the European Union imperialist intelligence apparatus, what have you. So our focus is four part. The first part is urging the White House, Congress, and the Senate 
the Henry Reeves Medical Brigade, the Cuban medical personnel, permission to deploy an emergency brigade to immediately come to U.S. borders and provide hands-on medical assistance in hospitals, clinics, and other emergency institutions. The second thing is urging the U.S. White House, Congress, and the Senate to grant the Henry Reeves Brigade the opportunity to deploy that brigade, and they will do hands-on training with U.S. medical personnel who are not used to and are not accustomed to treating people in the midst of a pandemic. Number three, urging the White House, Congress, and the Senate to grant the American Medical Association, the National Medical Association, the Black Nurses Association, permission to work in conjunction and harmony with the Henry Reeves Medical Brigade once they arrive on U.S. soil. And the fourth thing is those same three entities allow the victims on U.S. soil to have access to interferon alpha-2b, which was developed by Cuba's Center for Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology. This measure would be a step in concert with the other 45 nations worldwide who have made a formal request for interferon alpha-2b based on its proven effectiveness. And um, there are a lot of individuals um, that were responsible for this distribution of this appeal. Of course, the um, retired co-chair, former national co-chair of the National Network on Cuba and current member of the AAPRPGC, um, Bamboshi Shango, Zaki Baroudi, the president of the Universal African American People's Association out of St. Louis, Brother Jermaine Shabazz, um, Foundation of Black America, their social media liaison, Reverend Majani Dele of Reverend Majani Dele Ministries, em- Empress Chi, the founder and, and president general of the National Million Women's March and Universal Movements, Mr. George Geiger out of Indiana, Kwaku Lumumba of the um, Kobit Sitawayan Socialist Posuwe Haiti, which is a socialist organization on the ground in Haiti, um, Fahima Sek for Media Outreach, Reverend Dr. Joan Brown Campbell and Reverend Dr. Albert Pennybaker, the former um, Secretary General and President of the National Council of Churches and Assistant Secretary General of the National Council on Churches for their invaluable contacts and strategic advice. Um, Ms. Tej Grewal for a crucial role in the outreach process on the West Coast and Dr. Lucy Norville Perez, last but not least, the first President of the National Medical Association former president of the National Medical Association, to lead a delegation to Cuba. And so these are some of the people that we have to thank. And um, you see the list for itself. And um, what I wanted to do this evening, uh, answer any questions you have, but I just wanted to highlight the significance of the list. Because when you go to battle, it's a question of um, your discipline and a question of your ammunition and a question of your um, focus. So um, I would just like to highlight the list as we go on in this conversation. Okay. Uh, Brother OP, just in general, we're going to open up to some questions with our panelists and other listening audience who may have some mm-hmm. questions for you, for you as it relates sure. to this appeal. I'd like to just ask mm-hmm. you in general, what kind of, how difficult was it to get the kind of names and endorsements for this appeal when you First attempted to put this out to the public. It was it was very easy, and it had nothing to do with with us per se. It had more to do with the timing and the love and appreciation that people have for Cuba's medical personnel and what people have for Cuba's re- revolution in general. 
specifically their medical personnel, which Comandante Fidel Castro um, affectionately referred to as Cuba's greatest army, which was the name of the children's play that we did seven years ago. Okay. What I'm going to do right now, I'm just going to open up to our panelists and to the listening audience. Uh, we're talking about this appeal. There has been not in our community calling for the Cubans and the medical brigade to come in to assist our brothers and sisters and, and the community in general as we be, begin to continue to fight this um, pandemic that's going on. What we want to do right now, you can feel free to call in to ask Brother Opie any questions you may have by dialing 323-679-0841. Please hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. Please hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. Okay, Brother Opie, uh, we'll go to our first caller. Uh, Panelists, as a matter of fact, we'll go to Brother Anthony. Yes, Brother Anthony, your question or comment for Brother Opie. Certainly. A couple of questions, Brother Obi, and revolutionary greetings to you. Great to have you on the program today. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, uh, let's see. This uh, um, I want to uh, commend the people who 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 put this appeal together, spearheaded mm-hmm. by yourself, in terms of honoring our recent ancestors. Uh, Man, mm-hmm. Ma- Ma- Manu Dubongo, uh, Ellis Marcellus, mm-hmm. and Bill Weathers. Yeah. And um, uh, let's see. Um, I, I know they became recent ancestors, and uh, I don't know whether historically they've that they've uh, you know um, you know had indicated uh, much support you know for uh, Cuba or, or or their revolutionary process but i thought it was commendable that you did that as well as a couple of uh, figures Charles Barron and his uh and his wife who are both uh who are both then friends and supporters of Cuba and are recovering from covid uh 19 mm-hmm. right now and mm-hmm. um in light of um you know U.S.'s uh, pressure on various countries not to accept help from Cuba. Mm-hmm. Um, what uh, what uh, do, do you anticipate will be uh, the effect uh, the effectiveness of this appeal? Because uh, mm-hmm. the U.S. as usual is ex- exerting extraterritorial pressure on countries not to accept Cuba's help even though they themselves um, had asked for it. Okay. Um, thank, thank you for the question and your kind words. Um, real quickly, um, 20 years ago, I had the honor and privilege of participating in the Organization of Caribbean and Latin American Youth Congress in Cuba, um, commonly referred to as OCLAI. And at the time, it was Comandante Fidel Castro's first public comments about the Ilion Gonzalez situation. And he said that, Deciding to um, make a child, the gusanos in Miami, which means slimy worm in Spanish, and he was referring to the Cuban-American National Foundation, which was created in 1983, um, which was responsible for a significant portion of the 635 assassination attempts on the life of Comandante Fidel Castro, along with Alpha 66 and Brothers to the Rescue and these mercenary outlets. Um, What he said that day is he said because they attempted to make an example of a child like Ilion Gonzalez, he said it backfired on them. 
He said the average U.S. citizen learned more about Cuba in four months than they had in 41 years. Because of the advent of technology, the average U.S. citizen has learned more in the last month about Cuba's healthcare system than they have in the last 50 years. So because of that, we are very optimistic about this effort. And not only this effort, but a plethora of efforts, whether it's one individual writing to the Congressional Black Caucus, whether it's the petition for the medicine exclusively. And I do, if you do a comparative analysis of the response on an active level of how we responded 15 years ago when Cuba offered to send 1,500 environmental disaster specialists to the Gulf region after Hurricane Katrina, that response was casual. So 15 years later, there are a multitude of efforts. And um, we're just happy that the effort that we contributed got the response it did. So once again, based on the fact that the average U.S. citizen has learned more about Cuba's health care system and Cuba's heroic health care efforts outside of Cuba, we feel very optimistic, we feel very confident, and we will not be deterred. Okay, next we will go to our pluganist. Brother Moses, request your comment, please. Oh, greetings, brother. Uh, it's good to hear your voice once again. As, as usual, you come with organization and consciousness, and it's appreciated. Um, Thank you. Uh, I'm not sure what 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 are you what are you asking the general public to do in terms of uh, this the movement and the relationships you're trying to develop. Um, what, what we stated the objectives were to push for Cuban medical personnel to come to the country to be able to provide treatment, to be able to provide hands-on training to medical personnel who are overwhelmed because they're not used to dealing in the midst of a pandemic, to give Cuba a chance to strengthen ties with the National Medical Association, which they already have, the Black Nurses Association, which they already have, and the American Medical Association, which they already have. And um, fourthly, dealing with the drug. Now, it's important to say that dealing with the drug, understanding imperialist medical bureaucracy, if for whatever reason they acquiesce to the demand of the drug, we have to make sure that the poorest people have access to the drug because they may tell people on Medicaid your insurance doesn't cover you being a recipient, having access to it. So that's a tangible factor. On the long term, this is the 20th anniversary of the agreement between the Congressional Black Caucus and the Cuban government to grant um, 500 young people annually a chance to go to the Latin American School of Medical Sciences and be part of a program, six years worth of training. You become bilingual. It's $250,000 in monetary value, contingent on the fact you're going to come back to the poorest and most challenging communities in this country and give those communities the best quality service they ever had. In the long term, that would mean that the elderly in our community will be cared for better than ever before because of Cuba's impeccable track record in the arena of gerontology. It would mean that our children will have better treatment than anywhere than they've ever had before because Cuba marvels at the opportunity to do work to um, deal with the question of infant mortality. It would mean that our fight against HIV-AIDS will gain an upper hand because Cuba has the lowest HIV-AIDS rate in the world. Many people feel Cuba is the country that may be the first one to find a permanent cure to cancer. 
on the long term, you have to put that in the context of what was revealed at the United Nations 10 years ago by the World Health Organization, that between 2010 and 2038, they are expecting 57 million deaths from what are called NCDs, which stand for non-communicable diseases, i.e. cancer, heart attacks, strokes, diabetes, et cetera, et cetera. So what that means is, in addition to the fact that NCDs have surpassed um, cholera, surpassed HIV, AIDS, and malaria as the number one killer of the human being, what it means is that when a pandemic hits your uh, respected country, people who have those particular diseases, which are mostly respiratory, they are the most vulnerable to a pandemic just like this one. So the fact that on the long term, this puts us in a position to promote that medical scholarship program more aggressively, more passionately, at which is an extension of our struggle that goes back to 1896, which is the reason we created the National Medical Association in the first place, because we couldn't join the American Medical Association, which is connected to the work of Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois, who in 1905 wrote a journal called The Physique and Health of the Negro American, saying that our relationship to healthcare was worse in the early 1900s than it was when we were on the plantation. And also, before he transitioned to the ancestors, Booker T. Washington had Negro Health Week going on in this country. So it's a continuation of that work, but the difference is this time we are not accepting the imperialist definition of America, which is North America exclusively. We are reaching hands to Cuba so that we can prevail in this victory. And also, of course, this is inextricably linked to the never-ending struggle to lift the blockade on Cuba. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, next we'll go to our brother... Equani, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Mike is yours. Yes, sir. Peace and power. I'm going to say black power to all the panelists, uh, to all the family. Uh, the mm-hmm. great brother. How how are you? Fine. Fine. How you doing? That's great. That's great. I'm doing just fine. I'm doing just fine, and we can appreciate your work. Uh, I just like uh, the rest of the panelists. We definitely appreciate your work um but i'm i'm kind of uh my question is lodged somewhere uh in 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 the arena that that the brother anthony was was speaking of and you know speaking about uh america because i am a black man here in america that is conscious right um so that does put me at a place where, you know, even where they're saying now the mortality rate for black folks, uh, you know, in the in, in the wake of coronavirus, we, we are dying like we're dropping like flies. And then, mm-hmm. you know, the midst of this new coronavirus thing being put out, I'm looking at, at the TV and they're promoting this drug for HIV AIDS and it's basically saying, well, Hey, you can go mm-hmm. undetected or, you know, basically now I guess there's a, a, a big, uh, batter bully on the block. I guess AIDS mm-hmm. isn't so bad after all. And when I'm looking at these ploys, these, these continual ploys to, to target in, in my opinion, at black folk, at black folk, um, you know, mm-hmm. it, it is 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 the determination on whether or not America is going to be working with Cuba a one that's lodged at or in Cuba's revolutionary paradigm, okay? Even in the paradigm of them, uh, 
you know, providing refuge, providing refuge for the great uh, Ashada Shakur, right? Uh, And from what I understand, America had some some bad blood with Cuba after Cuba not giving her up. Uh, So, so Mm -hmm. I'm kind of like Brother Anthony. Do do we feel like this is a, a relationship that would be mended? In, in in speaking about the imperial mind in, uh, of of the European of white supremacy what, to keep uh, us uh, to keep us to keep us struggling in the black community. Okay, so um, were you finished? I'm sorry, I didn't want to cut you off. Yes, sir, I was. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. what specific specifically? What was the question? Well, my question is, is, is like I said, mm-hmm. basically, where Brother Anthony was, can we say that mm-hmm. America is going to be a one that is going to be on board for these things would that would only open? help? Okay. All right, right. I, I that would only question. help black folks. Well, I, I, I can only say this right here in relationship to that. It goes back to what Frederick Douglass said: "Power concedes nothing without demand." So it's about the quality of our demands. In relationship to the maliciousness of the imperial order, whether you're dealing with it in the social arena, economic arena, military arena, political arena, we're going to leave the horror stories for Stephen King and Jordan Peele. We don't care anything about that. We're just going to work. We're just going to fight. We're in the mind frame that the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was in when they walked into the room with peace movement activists, and they just wanted to deal with the Vietnam War, and they said, we're going after the mandatory draft. We're in the mind frame 75 years ago. The Fifth Pan-African Congress took place in Manchester, England, and a young Osage for Dr. Kwame Nkrumah and George Padmore, they came in the room and they said, we're going to eradicate settler colonialism. One thing about that is we don't want to get into the predictions because we don't want to come off like a meteorologist that tells you that it's going to rain tomorrow and you go outside and it's bright and sunny. All we're saying is we want to honor our historical responsibility and do the work that is necessary. And in order to do work on this magnitude, it's all about the alliances that you make, the strategical and tactical alliances. So as we close, I wanted to just um, float down the list of um, the fact that we got the National Council of Churches, who had already did a joint appeal with the Cuban Council of Churches, who are also players in um, the Martin Luther King Center in Cuba, which is the vehicle that churches go to Cuba to do humanitarian work and lend their voice to the never-ending struggle to lift the blockade. The fact that we have them on board, the fact that we have the daughter of the Dr. Kwame Nkrumah as part of this fight, our sister Samia Nkrumah, because if you know the history of the Cuban Revolution, Osage Kwame Nkrumah and the Convention People's Party were the first government in the world to come out recognizing the triumph of the Cuban Revolution. If you look at the appeal, you'll see the name Alice Wyndham, who took the picture of Brother Malcolm in Ghana called a part of the solution or a part of the problem. She was part, she's the first wave of repatriates out of the United States to go to Ghana. And if you know the history of that network, They were marching on the U.S. Embassy simultaneously with the March on Washington in 1963. And one of their demands was no no U.S. intervention on Cuba and Vietnam. You may see a young lady on the appeal named Erica Blunt Danois, who um, wrote a book about Soul Train, which is considered the best book written on Soul Train to date. She got the chance to interview Comandante Fidel Castro 20 years ago. 
arguably maybe the only journalist in this country under 50 years old who was granted access to him. You have um, Sandra Isakorin, who is who fellow Anikolapo Kuti credited with expanding his political horizons when she gave him the um, autobiography of, of Malcolm X. You have um, the Green Party represented on this. You have the Alliance for Global Justice represented on this. You have the National Network on Cuba represented on this. In terms of academicians in our community, you have Malefi Asante represented on this. You have Mark Lamont Hill represented on this. You have Dr. Tony Browder represented on this. Um, you have the... Uh, Emeritus Director of the National Lawyers Guild represented on this. I mean, the, you have Dr. Lucy Perez, the first National Medical Association president that um, led the NMA to Cuba, represented on this. And this is, this is just off the top of my head, um, different people. You have Mumia Abu-Jamal represented on this. You have Russell Maroon Schultz, two of our most decorated and celebrated prisoners at war, rec- um, part of this fight. So, I mean, when you go through the list and you see the people who committed themselves to this, to this particular fight right here, we have no choice but to feel optimistic. But we feel that this is an extension of the fight against the blockade. Um, that fight has been going on since 1962. And fighting against imperialist sanctions is not an easy fight. And, of course, we know that um, this will also lead to more education. And I'm part of an organization called the Zimbabwe Cuba Friendship Association, which highlights another aspect of um, a positive attribute of Cuba's love for humanity, because between 1986 and 1996, 3,000 Zimbabwean teachers went to Cuba for training. And um, that's the reason why Zimbabwe boasted 97% literacy rate in the arena of education today. So um, when you look at the list of people who have signed on, um, you have um, Councilman Calvin Hawkins, the council of large at PG County. Anyone who knows the United States demographics knows that's the most affluent African suburb in the United States, so-called African-American, U.S.-born African suburb. And he signed on to it. Malika Sanders Fortier, who signed on to it. And our targets tomorrow immediately are the Congressional Black Caucus, the National Conference of Black State Legislators, which many people have a tendency to overlook but they have more of a policy formulation and the National Conference of Black Mayors. And we're going through Raz Baraka, not just the mayor of Newark, New Jersey, not just because of our 30-year relationship with him, but if you know the history of Amiri Baraka, one of the best essays he wrote in the opinions of many was Cuba Libre. And he was part of the second delegation of Africans to go to Cuba in July of 1960. He led that delegation of Harold Cruz, Julian Mayfield, and many others. And the first delegation we know was led by Joe Lewis on Christmas week of 1959. So this work is, uh, been a, has been a long time coming. It's been going on for a long time. But because we have such a struggle in the arena of health and understanding of the struggle we have against non-communicable diseases, the struggle we have against global pandemics, and the fact that people in the United States are not used to dealing with this, and the fact that we are doing this at a time where a poor blockaded nation has become the face of the struggle to eradicate this pandemic, putting emphasis on their poverty, but the dignity they maintain. At a moment in the world where there are 784 million people who live on $1.90 a day, and 400 million of them are on the African continent, and of the 25 poorest nations in the world, 22 are in Africa. And the reason I'm bringing that up 
Another long-term goal in relationship to this project is us coming together to finance Cuba's medical efforts on the African continent through the African Union offices in Washington and the uh, um, United Nations affiliate in New York. It was, it was um, confirmed a few weeks ago that the neocolonialist government of Ghana and Akufa Addo, the president, working in conjunction with the U.S. Africa Business Center, which is the African branch of the Department of Commerce, pocketed $1.9 billion off the year of return. And the, and the significant portion of people who went there, when they go to Ghana, their communication with the Ghanaian people is going to be in a couple of prepositions. Clean my toilets, cook my food, clean my car, give me um, water my plants. So if we can put money towards something that is not for the advancement of African people, not for the advancement of the genuine African cause, for liberation and human dignity, imagine how we're going to be when we decide to invest in Cuba's efforts on the African continent. But the first one of the crucial steps will be for organizations at the local level and the national level. And if you look at the appeal, you see the level of representation. People were telling me earlier today the closest thing that they see to it was when the great William Worthy, which was published in the Afro-American, which was copied, I believe, in Rosemary Neely's epic book, Memories of a Meeting, the meeting between Malcolm and Fidel, she copied the photocopied the statement that William Worthy drafted Africans in this country, Afro-Americans as they called themselves then, in defense of the Cuban Revolution. And when you take a look at the fact that on, 10 years ago, the neo-colonialist Ford Foundation mouthpiece, Mr. Carlos Moore, put out a statement talking about racism in Cuba, and a lot of people were tricked and manipulated into signing it. And you take a look at that, and you take a look at what we were just able to pull off, and we're just beginning. We're out of the gates. And you take a look at the relation. And like I said, those statements, those weren't just people that signed on. That represents relationships. And the fact that you had so many different organizations, so many different institutions, so many different networks, regardless of the ideological differences, regardless of the age, regardless of the experience, regardless of their development, they all felt that this was a cause worth lending their human resources to, their voice to, and other additional energy. That speaks volumes about how the African community inside United States borders feels about Cuba, but their support out of Guyana, their support out of Jamaica, their support out of Africa. So it's Pan-African, but also we went beyond our community, those external to our community, felt comfortable dealing with this because we know that sometimes in solidarity circles, racism can contaminate even the most sincere efforts. So I'm humble to say in this instance, that wasn't the case. Okay. Next we'll go to brother Haki. Your question or comment, brother Haki. Yes, sir. A uh, real quick question for the brother. Um, I want you to, to uh, uh, speculate a little bit. Uh, you know, when you put out this appeal, I'm curious, what has been the response, uh, if you know, uh, by the powers that be to this appeal? Because on the, on the very nature, it seems to me to be, uh, for those in power, somewhat provocative. So to your knowledge, has there been any uh, pushback? We, released, we, just released it yes, we just released it yesterday, but like I said, I'll repeat. The fact that we got someone that is a member, Malika Sanders is the state, state senator of the 23rd District of Alabama, one of the poorest parts of this country. There are places in Uniontown, Alabama, where families are living on $13,000 a year. So the fact that she signed on to it and has agreed to drop it on the whole collective 
of the National um, Conference of Black State Legislators, we feel very good about that. The fact that Raz Baraka is going to present this to the National Conference of Black Mayors, we feel very good about that. The fact that there's a contingent in Los Angeles that is going to drop this on Karen Bass tomorrow, who is the highest-ranking Democrat on the Congressional International Relations Committee, we feel very good about that. The fact that we have some young comrades in Indiana who are going to drop this on Carson, Andre Carson. So we have our strategic targets. And once again, our strategic targets, we're going to start inside our community. Since the National Conference of Black Mayors look like us, since the National Conference of Black State Legislators look like us, Black Caucus looks like us, we're going to see if on this question, do they think like us, do they act like us, or do they move like us? Or are they going to be more about Joe Biden turning watermelon red and Bernie Sanders turning beetroot red. It's a question and like it's a challenge to them and it's a challenge to us. Yeah, but I don't I don't think you address the question I'm asking you. I'm not concerned about in terms of the people who are participating in this project. My concern okay. to you and I'm asking you to speculate, to your knowledge, are you aware of any pushback? Because it seems to me that there's a process involved in terms of putting I together this appeal. And when you say, when, and you so say what, when you say pushback, I'm I'm not like I said. We just launched it. I don't know what the pushback is going to be, but I and, and you. I mean, we try not to worry about that. But if you want me to get personal for a minute, I can. I know that um, 20 years ago, Bowie State University, when I was working there as a dorm director, we came Bowie State University administration put Cuba back on the outpost of tyranny list, Bowie State University was about to become the first historical black college and university to have a cultural exchange program with Cuba in history. And what happened after that is um, my contract wasn't renewed because I was a contract worker. And then after that, the campus uh, public safety department, campus police, as we call them, Rennepigs, as we call them where I grew up, they called me a month after I was working there and said that the FBI was on the campus investigating me. They went where I used to network, and they asked questions. And then when I had my lawyer contact the FBI agent, he said, oh, this is a routine. Mr. Egbuna spends a lot of time with the Cuban diplomats, but he hasn't done anything wrong. So um, but I was saying to myself in relationship to that, if the disciples of J. Edgar Hoover decide to do something to me, I couldn't think of a better way to leave the planet than standing firmly behind Cuba. So we don't know what the backlash is going to be. We're just going to honor our historical responsibility. They are capable of any and everything, but that shouldn't deter us from doing what history obligates us to do. Yeah, well, I appreciate your response because that's the thing I was trying to get at. Because the whole point okay. is if you're doing something that's worth a while, if you're doing something that's principled, something that truly mm-hmm. exposes the system, then that's going to be pushback. And so that's why I ask you. But like, I, your, but like you, I said earlier, man, we leave in the horror stories to Jordan Peele and Stephen King. They can do what they want to do. We're going to do what we have to do. The world ain't big enough for us. Yeah, but, but people need to understand this kind of work is there's a price to be paid in terms of this kind of work. It's not as easy as people think it is. And so people need to understand that when you do this kind of work, there are repercussions. And so it's, but, when you, so you, when you know, talk you know, about the history, but, but the let me finish, brother. Let me finish. Let me finish, brother. So, so, when you, so, when you, so when you expose these ideas and when others bring these ideas up in terms of the kind of things they have to go through in terms of doing this kind of work, then people have a great appreciation for what you're doing. And that's my only point, and mm-hmm. that's why I ask you this. So that's the whole point. So I appreciate your response, and I'll conclude with that. No, nah, and that's cool, but what I was going to say as I, as I think about it, it's 
Yeah, it really doesn't matter because from from that vantage point, because Marion Barry didn't do this type of work. He was just the mayor of Washington D.C. and they spent ninety million dollars. The FBI did on him, and it was discovered in 1993 by Congressman John Conyers. They had reason to believe that every elected official that we have has been under some type of surveillance, and they weren't doing anything like this. So what we have learned through the years is it doesn't matter. So if they're monitoring our elected officials, be they in a local capacity, be in a national capacity, we already know what to expect from them, but it doesn't deter us. So um, I understand that the more intense the narrative, the more um, intense the way we express ourselves, you anticipate things like this potentially happening. But um, it's happened to so many people. And it will continue to happen. But I guess the question is, the more people are involved, they don't have the luxury of zeroing in on one person or two persons. And hopefully, if we have our way, it'll be so many that they'll go cross-eyed trying to watch us all. Um, Brother Opie, in the context of giving our listening audience the history and the role that Cuba has played in these various kind of um, pandemic um help issues mm-hmm. with viruses and yeah. looking at the narrative that has been played in the United States as if there's no kind of medicine and there's no kind of um, way of, of fighting these particular type of uh, viruses. Can you talk to us mm-hmm. a little bit about the Cuba uh, role in terms of the track record, the track record that they have as well as if you could talk about, you yeah. know, what, is it, what kind of medicine they've been using they have been receiving uh, worldwide attention and positive results on how they are dealing with this this crisis versus how um, yes, the, the the one the one that is getting all the recognition is interferon alpha two B, which they developed at the Cuban Center for Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology. In relationship to their track record of dealing with pandemics, it's also um, extended to dealing with treating people in the midst of a natural disaster. So um, they first got attention in 1986, worldwide attention for how they functioned during the Chernobyl disaster. Um, Because they have 500 permanently stationed in Haiti, um, they've been there for at least three or four hurricanes and they prevailed. The world got a, a, a snippet of their commitment four and a half years ago in Liberia, Guinea and Sierra Leone during the Ebola pandemic in West Africa. And um, the most ambitious undertaking that they want to um, embrace, the resources aren't there right now. When the Millennial Fund was developed um, 20 years ago, there was a conversation between the late Secretary General of the UN, former Kofi Annan, and the late Comandante Fidel Castro. And he had contacted Cuba asking would they make a monetary contribution towards the um, Millennial Fund. And the Comandante had to remind him that Cuba was afflicted by a blockade that has cost them, at this point, nearly $200 billion since it was first imposed to break their will. And um, what ended up happening is that they said that um, luckily for Kofi Annan, they functioned from a cultural paradigm, a moral paradigm, and a historical paradigm. 
that they believe the human resource is the most precious of all. And if the resources were ever available, they would deploy 4,000 HIV AIDS doctors, nurses, and specialists to the African continent, and they would remain there until HIV AIDS was eradicated. In addition to that, um, when they go in to deal with a pandemic, they remain there until order has been restored. If they were granted the opportunity to come to Hurricane Katrina, they had agreed to stay in the hospitals until functioning once again. But if anybody who pays attention to healthcare development, um, you know that those were the two worst public hospitals in the country. And not only that, they offered to come to D.C. General Hospital in the southeast section of D.C. 19 years ago, when, when that hospital was shut down, that part of the city, which was predominantly us, our people, you were you did not have a level one trauma center, and you did not have prenatal a prenatal unit or an ambulatory care, and several people were dying from car accidents, stab wounds, because they were attempting to go from the southeast section of D.C. to George Washington Hospital, which is treacherous depending on the time of the day that something occurs based on traffic challenges. So they're always up and ready, and um, this is uh, how they've dealt with pandemics. Um, people know it, like I said, and I'll repeat it once again, Ebola in Africa, the Chernobyl disaster in Eastern Europe, and um, the countless hurricanes, and the, the role they played in dealing with the um, cyclone, Cyclone Adai, in Mozambique, Zimbabwe, and Malawi last year. They went in without hesitation, and they started working. And the interesting thing about that also is when they're in Africa, the Caribbean, and Latin America, when they're dealing with these pandemics or they're dealing with a natural disaster, when they take their break from combat, as they call it, they're training the future doctors of those nations who make a, sign a written contract, a moral contract, to remain in those countries to smash the brain drain. So they're not going to come to France. They're not going to come to Portugal. They're not going to come to Germany. They're not going to come to New York to, um, for the finer things in life. They're going to stay with their people and face whatever medical obstacles their people are confronted with. So that's their track record in a nutshell. And that's why they are so desperately needed here right now. And for our listening audience and the everyday brother and sister, what can they do to put greater weight behind this appeal? Um, um, what advice uh, can uh, you the give most, them? We, the, young, the youngest person that's part of this effort is my, well, he says he's still my student, but he's 16 years old. He's an 11th grader at DeMatha High School in the Washington, D.C. area. He's the president of the Black Student Union. He's already working on getting all the Black Student Unions of the Catholic schools nationwide to support this effort. We have another young student who um, is uh, part of the Mass Emphasis Positive Action and Creativity Youth Brigade is trying to get all the student governments and all the HBCUs to push for this effort to take place. And the Mass Emphasis Positive Action and Creativity Youth Brigade will have out a mini documentary by next weekend um, as their contribution towards this effort. So these are the type of things that people can do. Um, because the National Council of Churches signed on to this, I want your listeners to understand that represents all the churches in this country, regardless of their spiritual focus. All Baptists fall under that. All Methodists fall under that. All Presbyterians fall under that. All Pentecostals fall under that. So people can go to their churches so that they can give a push, because we know that treating the sick is the gospel of Christ. 
So regardless of where people fall on the spectrum, they can do whatever is necessary to be part of this effort, and we're going to continue to build on it. But as you saw with the support that the initial appeal has, we are com- we've come out the gates extremely strong. And we're going to be working with our sisters and brothers in Canada who are doing the same thing. And we have support from um, some faculty at the Virgin Islands who, since the Virgin Islands is a a conquered, seized um, U.S. territory, they are pushing for the same thing. So it's becoming a um, hemispheric push, and it's becoming a worldwide push. So we just feel good that we were able to make a small, 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 minute contribution to this effort that in the eyes of the pessimistic seem um, insurmountable. And Brother Obi, one of the things I'm going to ask you one more question before we let you go because we know you're busy. But for many mm-hmm. times in this country, when we mention we're Cuba, we're in the African community, they become mm-hmm. very fearful and see Cuba as an enemy. Share with our people why you view Cuba, why we view Cuba. As, a, as an ally in terms of the struggles and the interests of African people in the border of the United States. Well, Give us your um, perspective. Hey, well, you know, it's a, it's a, um, in terms of history, um, it depends where you want to start. I mean, um, the fact that the first seven presidents of this country wanted to annex Cuba, so if it wasn't for the fighting spirit of our ancestors, Cuba could have ended up like Texas and California taken from Mexico, annexed, like a vacuum cleaner. So you have to factor that into consideration. They were 300 slave rebellions in Cuba, the most significant one by a great fighter named Jose Ponte, who was beheaded, and they kept his head at the Port of Havana to intimidate the other Africans who were under captivity. So while we were picking cotton and tobacco in the Carolinas, Virginia, Maryland, Louisiana, they were cutting sugarcane from sunup to sundown. We are one. One year before the NAACP was created, which was the same year Osage for Dr. Kwame Nkrumah was born, which was the same year that Catherine Dunham was born, a year before that, in 1908, the first all-African political party for self-determination was established in this hemisphere, Partido Independiente de Color, which stands for the Independent Party of Color, meaning that in English. And that was created in Cuba by our ancestors. The most honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey had 40 chapters at the Universal Negro Improvement Association, hyphen African Communities League in Cuba. Burkina Faso and the mighty people during the time of their revolution between 83 and 87, 3.5 million children got their proper vaccinations thanks to Cuba. We talked about the role they played in training teachers in Zimbabwe, which was why they boast a 97% literacy rate today. The safety of Sasada Shakur and Nehanda Obiadun, may she rest in peace, is um, another reason. Nelson Mandela being um, a recipient of the Jose Marti Award is another reason. Josephine Baker being allowed to perform there to show that segregation was a thing of the past is another reason. Che Guevara making France Fanon's Wretched of the Earth, arguably the most important book written in the 1960s, is another reason. Um, Nicholas Guillen being considered the last in use of Cuba and being the point of their revolution is another reason. Robert Williams being granted asylum there is another reason. Them fighting in Angola with us is another reason. Them um, sidestepping Kennedy's diplomatic intimidation tactic, bullying tactic, saying don't go telling Ahmed Bimbela 
don't go to Cuba, which was the next stop on his diplomatic tour as the president of Algeria. He goes to Cuba and not only goes, but he says his speech in Spanish. So the ties are old, the ties are true, the ties are beautiful, and pushing for them to come here to treat our sick is um, a continuation of that fight. And we're up for it because we have the lives of our children, the lives of our elderly to consider. So, um, and people, there are many different reasons, but in particular, their healthcare system is extremely intriguing to the to our people, especially right now. So, um, more more information will be made available. And the fact that um, they were able to turn around Italy, if they can turn around Italy, the United States is a drop in the bucket. The birthplace of Lucky Luciano, who used to run a, a heroin pipeline through a doll factory from Sicily to Havana. And in closing, Brother Opie, how can people get copies of the appeal and people who may want to support this work and maybe even bring you in that area to talk about this work and others that you are doing, how can they do that? Um, they, for now, they can um, email me, O-B-I-E-G-B-U-N-A-1-5 at gmail.com, and, we'll give, and we're developing the link today. And um, we'll we'll continue to work, but um, I know that you're going to post the appeal. The appeal is being posted all over um, social media sites right now, um, and it will continue to get publicity. But more, most importantly, is just people at the local level, um, the national level, as when people see the broad range of support that we have, um, you know that tells you everything. And the fact that people in the Caribbean and people in Canada, are, we're joining hands with them. And it's just a real beautiful thing that's bringing out the humanity in people beyond politics. So anytime you have something like that and humanity can flourish, we're better for it. So we thank everybody. We thank you for um, giving us extended time. Um, and uh, we wish you luck. Oh, and we thank you, the African Awareness Association, for signing on and being part of the fight. You're part of the fight as well. So the fight begins and it never ends. And um uh, Hopefully, real soon, our people will be able to um, have the luxury of being treated by them, which is something that, as challenging as it is in Africa, they have it. As challenging as it is in the Caribbean and Latin America, they have Cuban medical personnel taking care of them. We want to see the same thing happen here. So thank you so much for that. Thank you, Brother Opie, for sharing your continuous work on disappear, embracing Cuba, and like mm-hmm. always, you are always invited to come back and share any positive work that you are always doing for our people humanity. We thank you for your contribution to today's program. Thank you. Thank, thank you. All right. All right. You've been listening to Brother Obi Bunu. He's um, sharing this work, dealing with appeal that has just been released and called Embracing Cuba. He represents in the external relations officer of Zimbabwe Cuba Friendship Association, as well as the co-founder of Mass Emphasis Church and History Theater Company in Washington, D.C., and around Zimbabwe. What we're going to do right now, we're going to take a station break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a little bit about what's going on in our world and the community, and then followed by a continuation discussion of Part 3, 
taking a look at the coronavirus pandemic in the U.S. and the world. You listen to Africa on the Move. Thanks for having me, and revolutionary greetings to the fellow panelists and the listening audience. Um, as uh, as the economic crisis and the uh, uh, coronavirus uh, crisis intensifies in severity uh, in uh, you know inside the U.S., uh, the the level of um, uh, political repression, uh, you know, gets worse. Um, 
you see a very uh, a very heavy police slash military presence in our communities, and uh, and uh, let's see, and uh, they and uh, that's uh, and that's big, and at the same time, they're still uh, you know uh, you know ha- uh, harassing Africans over uh, over very very petty offenses in various parts of the country. In the meantime, the crisis in the prisons is getting worse, and also in the community at large because uh, at the end of the day, uh, the uh, the people that work in the prison system interact with the larger community. And uh, why, uh, while, uh, you, know, uh, you know, police and military are armed to the teeth, that their health care workers that are struggling to get adequate supplies to do their work properly. And there are increasing uh, demonstrations going on uh, about that in that regard. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Father Brother Anthony, Brother Haki, what's going on in your world in the community? Yeah, Brother Africa, I read an interesting article on the universal basic income, and uh, I thought it was a very, very good article. Essentially what he's saying is that he's advocating $2,000 for every U.S. citizen over 18 years of age and $1,000 for every resident under 18, uh, that's per month. And it's a very interesting plan because what he advocates is that, you know, when the recession ends, and by the way, we are in a recession, that he's talking about loan that amount of money that people receive on a monthly basis. He's talking about 1200 monthly for adults, and $400 per child. So it's very, very interesting that he come up with this universal basic income because the reality is this. When we talk about the kind of economic chicanery that goes on in the context of, of capitalism, when we talk about repos or we talk about uh, qualitative easing, these are simply means, ways in which, you know, they, they exchange, transfer money uh, from institutions to the most wealthiest people in society. Now, this transfer of funds to the wealthier people, the corporations in society, does nothing for the, over, for the over number, overwhelming number of people in society. And so, therefore, uh, when they actually do that, it actually has a more negative impact in terms of people's aspirations, in terms of jobs, uh, uh, decent housing, and so forth and so on. So, clearly, this question in terms of universal basic income is something that we have to, we have to seriously consider in terms of, in terms of you know, implementing in society. Uh, one of the things often the conservatives would say that uh, when it comes to universal basic income, it's, it's not workable. But if you stop and think about it for a while, if you look at it in terms of the GDP of the United States, for instance, just the defense spending alone, both discretionary and non-discretionary spending, which represents 32% of all spending in the entire country, if you simply reduce that and have you have more than enough money in terms of providing universal basic income for every person in the United States, so clearly the money exists, but the question is, it becomes a question of priorities. And so this is, I think, fundamental people have to begin to understand that when we talk in the context of capitalism, we've got to understand that the people in positions of power, those people who advocate classical economics, don't necessarily have the interest of working people at heart. And so, therefore, when they create situations that make it hard on us, then we understand, we understand without a doubt that this, these difficult situations that we have to abide by are by design. It's not a fluke. It's by design. So universal basic income is something that we have to begin to take very, very seriously. I think it certainly is one of the ways in terms of we can prevent large-scale um, insurrection in society. Because uh, one of the things I'm, I'm very, very clear on is that you know, there are certain right-wing forces who, are, who, are, uh, who adamantly await uh, the decline of the system because they want to justify just, you know, just, just killing lots and lots of people. 
and so therefore the universal basic income is sort of short short circuits that 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 whole process, which makes it impossible for these or the black priests to, makes it possible impossible for these people to actually carry out to carry out this policy because the conditions simply won't be there to empower them to do what they want to do. So we need to seriously think about the universal basic income. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we'll go with Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Well, this has been a very, very um, up-and-down week for me. Um, I've had a little personal and family uh, incident, and uh, fortunately it turned out to be a negative in terms of COVID-19. Uh uh, the president and and Congress uh, are all on the the corporate ladder, basically. Shall we say uh, they're uh, determined that we're not going to have health care, and they basically locked in with Joe Biden and the, and. The, this Democratic Party and and basically have have basically locking in the fact that they're going to be against health care and and uh, and it's going to be institu- continue to be institutionalized that way. Uh, this has been I don't know an interesting week. I I I'm not sure what stands out the most. Uh, I'm just know that the the humanity's worldwide united front against this coronavirus is is what we need, and uh, everybody on board with that this is a this needs to be fought, and that we're all threatened by it. And that's the main thing on my mind this week. And uh, I leave it right there. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Brother Moses. Going to Brother Equani, what's going on in your world in the community? Well, uh, man, uh, it, it, it definitely is a, a sense of panic, a sense of fear uh, that has been promoted to us as black folk as if we didn't have enough going on. Um, it has been a one where, you know, speak, people are speaking about coronavirus being man-made and actually going a little bit further, there was a patent uh, or is a patent on the coronavirus. I think we spoke of that previously. Um, So when these things and these types of things are playing in the coronavirus coming out, and I, you know, like to say that even the coronavirus is is racist, right? Because the numbers uh, in in the, you know, the death tolls are ones that are reflecting high numbers, um, you know, definitely disproportionate to white folk. Uh, in the Chicago area, I know I saw in uh, maybe Florida and uh, a couple of other other places. Um, and, and it's definitely a, a thing that it, it doesn't surprise me. Now we have Bill Gates as, as a poster boy all over this thing now, and he was the one that was speaking and, and, and singing and talking like Margaret Sanger. Um, you understand, basically uh, promoting white supremacy, white racism, you know, those same fundamentals uh, as it relates to killing our babies and destroying our life, uh, talking about population control, 
actually investing a lot of money into uh, vaccines and things of this nature. And we saw, uh, we see what vaccines, vaccinations have done and can do uh, to people and to our people. And it is a one where you have even uh, where, you know, Monsanto now is even running the quote-unquote healthiest of our food. And if we know anything about Monsanto, they are the ones that, um, you know, brought you Agent Orange and uh, the, 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 the weed killers. Um, you know, they bring you uh, the GMO. Um, a lot of times people look at them as the evil geniuses. So, um, you know, what we, what we are up against, in my opinion, is uh, warfare. You understand, in my opinion, it is, quote, unquote, World War Three. Uh, but they're going to hit us more subtly. They're going to attack us or uh, attacking people through their nutrition. And there's one where now your mucus, and they can make your mucus kill you, where, you know, where now you're going out and engaging and indulging and poor appetite, doing things that, uh, you know, poor lifestyle. And then they're making you basically or us kill ourselves. So it's a thing that, um, you know, hopefully – we can we can definitely uh, see what's going on to us and, and, and stop that, put 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 an end to it. You know, panelists, are there anything that came about this week through the through the mass media that would make you alarm in terms of trying to figure out what's really taking place with the so called so called coronavirus and the pandemic? I I can say this in, in, in my in my opinion, um, because I am quote unquote well, one of the children of you know, I don't wanna be deemed as a weirdo or anybody or anything, but uh, you know, looking at the, the teachings of uh Doctor Phil Valentine, uh metaphysics and, and, and things of that nature and I know that brother did bring some some, some good substantial information on heart and you know, uh, speaking about the radiation, speaking about the 4G, speaking about the 5G, um, and I'm not saying that 5G started this or, you know, but what is the detriment of these things being around us? What is the detriment of the blanketed radiation? You know, it tells you in your cell phone um, packet, packet not to even um, – you know, keep your cell phone close to you. So it, 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 it is a thing that, you know, makes me question what is really going on. I, that's been a lot of going back and forth. People are talking about the 5G. Well, they are crazy for saying that it's 5G or they have a point or they don't have a point. I think if a 5G tower is standing, is sitting right beside me in my house, we don't really know. We're basically the the, the, the dummies. We're the test subjects. We don't know what type of uh, detriment this is doing to our health. It might take five, the next five or ten years, but I'm sure science can prove and does show that these things do play a part in the degradation or uh, detriment of one's health. Um, so, so that has been an article that has or, or something that's been going. Uh, you know, I've been seeing a lot going back and forth and, you know, caught my attention. 
Brother, brother raises a, a, a very good point. Uh, you know, one of the things, you know, um, I, I recently read where they say that um, 5G has no deleterious, has no negative impact on, 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 a human, on a human body. And I'm like, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not a physicist, but one of the things I'm very, very clear on is that radiation and electromotive forces, you know, through physical courses I've taken, definitely impacts the human body. And for them to make a statement that it doesn't have an impact, Gives me mm-hmm. calls for pause, and so I'm very concerned that a lot of the stuff is is geared towards confuse people in terms of precisely what's going on. Uh, to the extent that 5G has any relevance in terms of um, this, this uh, coronavirus, uh, who's to say? You know, I can't discount at this point. I'm, this is one of those questions I continue to to try to find as much as I can in terms of the possible relationships that may exist. Uh, you know, so I can't at this point. I'm not going to discount that. I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm really uh, amazed at the fact that, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of information coming out, which is really in terms of science somewhat contradictory. And so, therefore, I, I, when it's contradictory, I have to conclude that, you know, that someone is trying to misdirect, you know, uh, people's understanding in terms of, you know, what's really going on. So it's one of those things that, you know, we should keep in the back of our minds and, and, and to research as much as possible in terms of understanding is there in a relationship that exists between the two? And if so, how? So I, 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 I think that, uh, you know, um, we've got to credit the, the uh, imperialist forces in terms of ability, in terms of mud in the water. And so, therefore, you know, as long as they keep from conflicting information, they can continue to, you know, divide people along, you know, uh, in, terms of, in, terms of, in terms of access to information. So clearly, Brother Africa, you know, I, I think the brother has a point that 5G, you know, is something that has to be looked into and that can't simply be discounted at this point. Because, you know, uh, one of the things I, I do know in terms of, you know, study of, of, of electromotive forces, one thing I do know is that the, that the human cells vibrate at certain frequencies. And to the extent that um, um, uh, this, this, um, this, this new technology can uh, activate uh, or, or duplicate that frequency, who knows? Uh, it's something that I'm looking into, something I continue to research, but I don't think it's something we can dis- discount at this point. Uh, I uh, I agree. Uh, I don't think it can be discounted, and uh, and it seems as if uh, let's see, the author uh, James Templeton of Wired Magazine seems to discount it, that counted entirely, but uh, but 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 I'm not sure of that because. Wuhan, in addition to where where the uh, coronavirus allegedly, uh, you know, started, also had had a huge, and probably still has a huge concentration of five G towers. And uh, just for this, uh, an FYI for the listening audience, five G is about uh, ten thousand times. Are more powerful than 4G, and uh, you know, and that, and being exposed to that level of radiation has some has some in, a, impact on 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 living organisms. What I don't know. I mean, that's something for further research. But I wouldn't just uh, d- dismiss the connection out of hand entirely. I think right. I think it does, and I think that by labeling critics of 5G and uh, uh, to dismiss it totally as uh, con- con- conspiracy theory, uh, you know, stifles research into the subject, 
and uh, and I think and, and I think it's a, a method of trying to hide something, mm-hmm. uh, like the impact on, uh, on 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 human and animal and plant life. And uh, so I think uh, I think we have to uh, be wary of the sources of information and what interest they have in put in, in presenting information the way they do. So I think that ha- uh, that's the context in which. You know, you, uh, you have to look at anything. Uh, you know what? Uh, you, you know what? What? What interests are 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 some of these? Uh, you know, people serving that put this kind of information out. Right. That was a very good point. That's a very good point, Brian Anthony. Because the thing is that right. you know, supposedly Wuhan is the center of 5G technology. That's the place where they innovated 5G. It's very, very interesting that it just so happened that this coronavirus happened to evolve, they say, in Wuhan. So right, it's, it's, right. I find it very, very interesting. I find it very, very interesting in terms of you know that 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 relationship you know between you know G five and, and and the coronavirus. Uh, but it's one of those things that you know we continue researching, you know, see what we can find out in terms of definitively, you know, decisively, you know, what's going on. Is there any correlation between the two? But one thing is clear. That you know, we understand that this virus is not something that uh, is a result of nature. We understand that very, very clearly. And so, because it's not a, 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 a function of nature, then we understand that the people who actually innovated this this, this virus. And so, we understand mm-hmm. there's clinical motivations in terms of doing so. And so, therefore, mm-hmm. we can't discount any means in terms of disseminating this virus, because you know, the bottom line is that um, uh, the capitalist position is that in order for you know uh, capitalism to thrive. People must must die, and so therefore, ingenious ways and methods in terms of killing all people is for, for, uh, lies squarely in their minds. So therefore, we have to we have we can't take anything you know you know lightly. We have to research as much as we possibly can in terms of trying to come understand it precisely what's going on. And once we're clear in terms of what's precisely going on, to convey that idea to the people in terms of you know uh, information that we gathered. And and if if I may add real quickly that on the other end of the spectrum you have India. I think they were, you know, some of the more recent ones to start, you know, coming up with the coronavirus, but for a, a while they were behind everybody as it relates to having any cases of coronavirus there. And you know, I think I made mention to this last week, they were kind of behind the mark. I think they only had 4G available. And you know a lot of those areas uh, that they were actually speaking about. So that's something else to 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 look at. And I think I heard you guys speaking about the political dynamic. We know what year this is. So my question to you all: I wanted to not dis, disrupt the 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 momentum, but I wanted to ask you guys the question of: Is this maybe is this a face of you know? Uh, a ploy of politicians, of or of political tactics. Does is 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 this a face of new politics, uh, political agendas that may be set in in front of? And we do know politics is about, in my definition, white power or the power of somebody. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't. I, you know, I think it's clearly it's a strategy. I don't think it's no no question about that. If you look at if you go back and look at ID twenty twenty policy, they're very clear on terms of need to color, color uh, so called kill off, 
you know, a uh, large number of people. And there's a notion that in terms of a scarcity that exists, that they had to kill a large people because the scarce, a scarcity, you know, potentially could exist. It's absurd. The scarcity exists because it's, because it's man-made. And if you stop and think about it in terms of, for instance, agriculture, the reason why there's a shortage in terms of access to food is because people are, people are paid to not grow certain crops. In addition to that, if you think back historically in terms of, you know, crop rotation, those kind of things in terms of, you know, keeping the, for, the, the soil, you know, uh, uh, fertile, all of that has been disbanded. Now it's all about the pursuit of profit. And now corporations own most of the fertile, arable land. And so clearly the scarcity that we're talking about is man-made. It's not that the planet doesn't have enough space, enough fertile land to feed the, to feed the world. It does. The country of Zaire alone could feed the world, you know, you see. So, so, so clearly this, this notion terms of, of, this, this notion terms of scarcity, this pushed in terms of destroying large segments of humanity, is as part of a strategy. And one of the things that keep in mind that when we talk about coronavirus, this coronavirus, they're talking about it's going to return in about 18 months. That is, very, that is a very interesting statement to say. You mean to tell me you researching all, you invested all this money in research in terms of potential vaccine, in terms of eradicating this coronavirus? But now you're telling me that 18 months is going to return. Well, if you're telling me it's going to return, then what you're telling me is that you, you know clearly that these vaccines that you're, going to, that you're going to create are not going to really, really solve the problem in terms of coronavirus. And secondly, you're telling me, you know, that in order for you to make a statement that you know it's going to return in 18, 18 months, then you know specifically how the virus works. That's the only way you make a statement. Otherwise, you wait and see if that happens, and then you say, oh, by the way, Coronavirus uh, is back uh, and mutated as a different strain. Assuming it does have a different strain, you see, my guess is it will have a different strain. Now it currently exists. We have MERS, SARS, HIV, um, DNA contained in, in in the coronavirus. My guess is the next one is going to be even stronger. So perhaps you maybe have Ebola in emerged, in, in you know, in this virus that's going to that's going to that's going to emerge in 18 months. So clearly, it's all part of a grand strategy. I don't think anybody's deceived about, deceived about that. The question is, what, knowing that, what are we going to do in terms of, you know, if we don't stand up, if we don't stand up and fight and demand a different paradigm, a different system, a different way of, of human interaction, if we don't do that, then no people in positions of power are adamant in terms of maintaining power at all costs. And the history is very clear. They have no problem in terms of destroying people. They have no problems whatsoever. So this is a dilemma that we face, but I think it's clearly it's strategic. Well, panelists, I thought it'd be interesting. I would like to get y'all to weigh in on this this phenomenon, um, and it's just really interesting in terms of just trying to be a human and just use your common sense. Earlier at the beginning of the so-called um, pandemic, they made it um, real clear that. You must have certain specifications of these masks. The N95 will only be the correct mask that could keep you from catching the virus. Not only did they make that statement, but also they reinforced the whole idea that they only wanted these masks to be in the hands of those in healthcare. Now, I don't, I don't really understand limiting it just only to those people when you talk about millions of people's lives who may be at stake. But as we went further down the road, one, two weeks later, and recently now they're telling people that, hey, look, you can wear a mask, but because these masks is not, don't have the same qualification to N95, it's not going to stop you from catching the virus. So my question to this panelist and the listening world, 
what is the game you're being played around this whole question of masks? If you don't have uh, a mask that can keep you from catching the virus, what's the relevance of even having a mask? And to add in, injury to this, 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 this narrative as relates to dealing with our people on uh, ignorance and common sense, in Philadelphia just recently on the news and on many on um, social media, there was an incident where they had some had three, four policemen went on a bus to get a individual off because he wasn't wearing a mask. But after he took about the bus and there was such an uproar about he didn't have one a mask, then the city of Philadelphia just make a policy and said, well, we're not going to make it no, no longer mandatory to have a mask. So what is going um, on with, with, with this question, what the game they're playing with the mask? Yes, Anthony. Yeah, I want to add that uh, that actually what your observation uh, actually is, uh, you know, is very correct, Brother Africa, and uh, and it reflects a larger problem, well, inside the U.S., that the response to this coronavirus pandemic is piecemeal. Each state is uh, basically doing their own thing. And there's no uh, national coordination of the response. And because uh, in contrast to Pennsylvania, New Jersey requires that if you go into a retail store or if you use mass transit, you have to wear a mask. And, uh, and, and, and on, on the other hand, uh, you, uh, you, you know, uh, uh, you see uh, n- uh, news clips or, or, or articles about healthcare workers playing, uh, co- complaining about the shortage of, uh, of uh, gowns and other personal protective equipment, and as well as masks. Uh, and uh, you know, so uh, and also. Uh, you know, companies donating masks, but they, t- but but they're saying that uh, that 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 medical grade masks should only be used for healthcare workers, and whereas uh, you know, uh, you know, people outside of the healthcare can, profession can make a mask out of a, out of a cloth or a t-shirt or something. So uh, so there's uh, there's very uh, uh, there's very discon- uh, uh, confusing information pull, uh, being put out regard to in regards to the mask issue and uh, and that's I think is a symptomatic of the fact that there is that that unlike most other countries there isn't a national uh, uh, nationally coordinated response uh you know to the uh to to the pandemic and uh that's why you know uh you you know uh, some states are more are more casual than others in terms of what they require their people to do and it makes for a very dangerous situation to me to me brother how can you make this you can make a statement, Hacky. Let me just finish the statement. They are playing on the intelligence of the, of the people. Because, you know, if you talk about putting mass, a mask on and not going to be infected, then it makes no difference whether you have one or not. The best you can think about 
It's just a narrative. Somebody's going to make some money by you buying materials. Yes, go ahead, Brother Haki. Yeah, you know, with respect to these masks, Brother Africa, I, I, you know, one of the things that I, I, I find extremely problematic is that back in 2017, the intelligence community told him, told, told the Orange Menace that the virus was on its way here. Despite that warning, the the U.S. Uh, actually sold um, lots and lots of gowns and, and, and masks and ventilators uh, across the world. This, Actually, the, the report talks about the fact that they sold quite a few uh, disproportionately uh, to, to China. So um, the question is that if you know a virus is on its way come, why would you then therefore uh, allow a license to take place where you, act, where you actually send those things that you need, those the vital pieces of equipment that you need in terms of masks and ventilators, why would you allow any corporation to sell those abroad, in particular to your so-called adversary, which is China? So clearly, there, it seems to me that so when you talk about the fact that they talk about you know only you know the the, the best grade mask for medical personnel, they clearly to me they're making a, a very a, they're making a distinction in terms of who's worthy and who's not. In other words, who should live and who should die. It seems to me, because if in fact they they are equally concerned about all life in in, in this country, then it, then the, that shouldn't even be a choice. Those quality-grade masks should be provided to all people, not just a particular substrata of people. So clearly, clearly to me, it seems to me, you know, that this, this war against the people is very, very clear. And, and it seems to me that if, if people haven't gravitated towards that point yet, I guess maybe they, they never will. But clearly, you know, this question in terms of masks, and in, in addition to that, let me, let's read this one, one point real quick about Africa while I'm thinking about it. What is what is very interesting is that even in context of the the, 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 be, the best grade when it comes to masks, one of the things that they talk about that the virus is only effective up to a certain point. And so therefore, you know, I'm like, well, if, if the virus if those masks are only good for up to a certain point, it means that you have to change those masks periodically. So the mere fact that they say that they're only good to a certain point, in my mind, suggests that the masks do nothing in terms of preventing um Preventing the spread of coronavirus. In addition to that, there are those scientists who take the position that coronavirus also can, you know, can go through the eyes, through the ears. Uh, so, so therefore, you know, the mask would do nothing in terms of stopping coronavirus, which, which again, uh, leads me to believe that there's a lot of politics, strategic planning uh, going on in terms of the kind of information that's been disseminated for the sole purpose of misdirecting people in terms of what's really going on in terms of coronavirus. But this question in terms of the mask, I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's no way to justify it. To say that only certain people have, should have access, in, in the government's words, even the quality of mask, while others shouldn't, speaks volumes in terms of priorities as, uh, in terms of who lives and who dies in society. So I think we got to really think about that one. Okay, panelists, and to listen audience, this is Africa on the Move. Uh, we will continue the discussion. We are taking a look at the coronavirus pandemic in the U.S. and the world. When we come back, we're going to talk about some really interesting articles that were just recently published around this issue. We'd like to hear your views on it. We're going to talk about race and this whole question of racism as it relates to this particular pandemic. When we come back, we'd like to hear your views and comments by dialing 323 Six seven nine zero eight four one. This is Africa on the Moon. Buffalo soldier, dead like. 
Africa, and we are discussing uh, our part three, taking a look at the coronavirus pandemic in the U.S. and throughout the world. We'd like to have your views and perspectives by dialing in at 323-679-0841. What I'm going to do right now, we have a caller who we've been waiting for a while. Uh, maybe this caller may like to share something. We can call the last four numbers, your phone number. If you'd like to make your, have any comments, question, you can do it so now, caller. We have caller 6308. Would you like to make a comment, question, caller 6308, your last four phone numbers? If not, I guess the caller is more to continue to listen. That is fine. What we're going to do right now, uh, panelists, there's an ear interest article that really um, raised many of the concerns that we've been speaking to about what's going on with this particular pandemic, not only just inside the U.S., but throughout the world. And this article brings attention to some of the concerns that many uh, people have as it relates to the African community. And the title of this article is Racism Role as French Doctors Suggest Virus Vaccine Test in Africa. Um, the subtext under the title which were written by Rebecca Rosman for Alger News, it stated that two doctors sparked criticism for discussing in a TV show the idea of testing a vaccine for the coronavirus in Africa. Two French doctors have been accused of racism for suggesting that a potential vaccine for coronavirus should be first be tested on people in Africa. Panelists, what kind of response did that uh, trigger in your mind when you read this article? And for those two fish doctors who take such a position, Brother Haki? Yeah, well, Brother Alfred, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not surprised. Uh, you know, you know. There's a concept currently being banded about by the conservatives, and, and this is the thing to understand. When we when we talk about conservatism, we got to understand these people are, 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 are very connected and they're very very organized. And one of the concepts they, that they're talking about is human biodiversity. Now, you think about human biodiversity, how absurd that concept is. Now, when we talk about biodiversity. Normally, you're talking about um, Let's say, for instance, you talk about um, uh, the desert versus a, a, a forest canopy or something like that. So it has different characteristics. And so, therefore, so when we talk about biodiversity, then clearly you talk about different, different systems. He's saying that what their conservative position is that uh, among human beings, there's different biodiversity. In other words, uh, there's certain, certain, <laughs> certain, uh, certain characteristics, certain ways of existence that exist among people based upon skin color. And of course the notion that somehow that race the notion that race has any any viability is absurd. Of course those of us who understand human history understand that there's no such thing as a race. But nonetheless to the conservatives race has a quantifiable uh, 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 resonance. And so it's absurd. But nonetheless they believe that. And so if they believe in the fact that somehow that, that skin color makes you somehow different uh based on based simply upon skin color then it's not surprising to me that given a long history in terms of racism, particularly racism, you know, coming out of the West, 
that I'm not surprised that the first thing he would say say, well, listen, we got something that's untested, so let's go, let's go, therefore, let's go try it on people who are not quite fit, or let's try it on people who are, who exist as esoteric, let's try it on people whose uh, contributions to the world, you know, are, 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 simply doesn't exist, and so therefore, if they happen to them, who's going to care? So I think that uh, that kind of thinking is, for me, it's not surprising. You know, it's not surprising. These guys are just stupid enough to say it out loud, whereas most conservatives wouldn't say it out loud. They'll be more surreptitious in terms of the application of, you know, trying that. They will simply go to Africa, try to set up shop, and, and pay people in terms of, you know, participating in these, uh, these, 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 these medical experiments. And once the results uh, are tabulated, they come back to the West and say, okay, well, this doesn't work, but this does work, blah, 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 blah. So clearly, you know, I'm not surprised about Africa. You know, they, 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 these guys are just uh, racist enough to say it out loud, but they're not, un, they're not unusual. Uh, this sentiment uh, permeates uh, the, uh, the uh, conservative uh, mindset. So I'm not surprised. Brother Anthony, your take on this article? Yes, I think it... Uh it, 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 you know, it indicates the pervasiveness of racism that exists in the scientific community. And Haki is correct. Uh, usually, they don't express it that openly. You know, but I think, uh, but 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 I think the reaction is that uh, that, uh, that 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 uh, you know, my reaction is that Africans are human beings. Just like like all the other members of the human family, we're not guinea pigs. And if any, and if anything, uh, you know, if if they were concerned about, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, addressing the illness, uh, it seems like they would uh, they would test the first in Europe, where the the stats show that 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 there, there are a lot more cases. And uh, so, uh, you, you know, I think it's a, but I think it's typical of how uh, of how Africans have been exploited uh, for medical experimentation uh, for hundreds of uh, years. Brother Equani, you take on it. Yes, sir. Um, it is the one that uh, I definitely agree with uh, both of the brothers. And um, especially when we're speaking about the conservative mentality that does go into the comments that were being made and basically the actions that are not only being carried out on this level. So we know if they're brute in their physical language on a public mainstream platform, we understand how their tactics are there on, on the ground, right? We understand how we, I'm pretty sure it's, it's similar to the dynamic that we're seeing in China now, right, where uh, the undesirable Negro, so, you know, in this case, let's test them or let's test them or, you know, they don't deserve life or whether it be out of any religious book or whatever it is, you know, let's, 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 let's test this thing out on these guys. So I, I think it is a rhetoric that is being openly uh promoted uh even in you know the the cheeto the cheeto of america <laughs> donald 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 dump so uh you know speaking speaking about the the orange uh cracker in my in in my in my language you know this this brute 
conservative traditional mentality. You know, this good old boy that is in that that system, the good old boy system, right? We we see that as being a one that's not foreign or not only singular to the Europeans here in the West. We understand where they got it from. You understand? So we, as those ones that are conscious, we know these Europeans and these white folks are definitely uh, pan supporters. They are collective. Uh, so when even we heard about Donald Trump and his engagement with Russia, is not surprising. When we're hearing these comments about how the French are possessing and having the same good old boy mentality, it is one that fits the 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 notion of a lot of Europeans, and now not only Europeans, but a lot of people, period. So it is a one that we, as those people, we are going to have to stand up, you know, here in the West for our brothers and sisters over there, whether it be on social media, whether it be financially, however it is, and support and say, hey, these are our brothers and sisters. They they are going to have to stand up and say, hey, we aren't do these types of things, and you know we, we're going to have to make make a uh, make a statement, and um, actually actually you can't do that if we're over here, you know, doing silly things, engaging and doing. You know, we really have to get our minds in order so we really can put our thoughts and our energies in places that count. Brother Moses, your take. Let me let me go to Brother Moses for a second. Brother Haki, do not come back to you. Brother Moses, your take on this. This mindset of these two French doctors as it relates to African people. Yeah, um, I wasn't able to get to that this this time. Uh, I want to pass on this right now. Thank you. Okay, Brother Haki. Yeah, you know one of the things I was thinking about Africa. One of the things is that you know the the the, the French the French doctors' motives might be suspect. I'm thinking, you know, statistically as it currently stands, the infection rate. In Africa is relatively low. I'm thinking that maybe it's possible you want to go there to find out precisely why is it so low and what can it do to better perfect a, a, a better virus next time. So I'm sort of skeptical in terms of their motivations. Uh, you know, and this, you know, um, you know, um, so. Good point. Yeah. So, Good but when point. they, so, so when they, so, so, so when they, so when they, so when they, so when they openly say things like that, let's take it to Africa, then normally it has a, a very, 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 um, a negative connotation. Uh, normally, it's with the intent to hurt. So, uh, when you look in terms of historically the language of the colonialists, one of the things they talk about, let's go to Africa, it always meant let's go to hurt them. It wasn't go to help them. It wasn't go to appreciate what they have. It was good. To, we, let's let's hurt them. So, I'm very concerned. You know that uh, their motivations are not pure, and I think that I, I really appreciate the fact that. Uh, the brother uh, out of uh, France, I think he plays he plays soccer. Um, his last name is Pogba. Pogba. I appreciate his response when he said that Africans are not guinea pigs. So, so I appreciate that you know the consciousness among you know brothers, you know in the uh, in the in, in the sporting world and in, in, you know athletes, you know come to realization you know that they are, they are, what they have to say carries weight. And so by him saying that, it uh, it. Um, uh, it uh, it has a great impact, you know, throughout the world. So I'm I'm appreciative of the fact that he actually says Africans are not guinea pigs. So that was uh, fantastic. You know, panelists, one of the things the pandemic is clearly has drawn out as it relates to African people is that we are not free. 
I think I once heard Brother Kwame once gave a conception-wise definition of freedom. And he talked about, in the context of when we talk about freedom as a people, we're talking about people who must have the ability and the means to control those necessities for life. Now, you look at what's going on now. Everything that is dealing with this particular pandemic, in terms of research, in terms of um, um, information, in terms of um, medical support, what have you, we are in a real vulnerable position. We are totally dependent upon those forces that were historical and dialectically opposed to our well-being and interests, and we continue to listen to them. How do we get out get out of this kind of vulnerable position? We can't question anything because we're not there in the room actually to see. From the beginning, the foundation of our research, um, make decisions on what methodologies is best used when it comes to variations of people. We control no media, mass media outlet to get any information out that may be pertinent to us that we need. We are totally, totally dependent upon them. For example, we know that historically, for the scientific world, to come up with a vaccine on average, based on past history of dealing with these kind of pandemic, you're talking about two to three years at the minimum. But they are talking about coming up with vaccines within six months to one year and going to pose that on the people to have to take it. And if we don't take it, then you run the risk of being incarcerated. You run the risk of not being able to go back to the work. Now, giving your common sense and knowing the generalities of, of, of how difficult to to find vaccine to uh, come up with cures, why should anyone submit to anything they talk about doing within six months to a year? How do we deal with this reality, which is about to hit most of our people in the next one or two months, families? Uh, we have to, one, uh, education becomes critical especially political education, uh, and we have to be better organized. Uh, unfortunately, uh, for all the centuries we, uh, we've, we've been in this society, we don't control anything. Not only don't we control media, we don't control our, uh, you know, the educational system, we control nothing. That's because we don't control any land. And uh, Africa's been under subjugation uh, for the la- for at least the last five centuries since the Maafa. And uh, because of that, we don't control our just homeland. And Africa has been and, and African people have been used to produce wealth for other people, for the countries. And even the organizations we participate in as employees, we don't control. Uh, we don't control anything. We're not in control, and that and, and and primarily that is because of our lack of organization. We do participate in a lot of the institutions that make up the society, but we don't control any, and that's the biggest contradiction. And uh, in terms of um, you know what we got, uh, what we're doing, if they impose a vaccine requirement upon us, 
it's problematic because I don't see us getting organized fast enough to counter, uh, you know what, uh, you know what, what, you know what they're planning, uh, you know down the down the pipe, given our our low level of consciousness overall. Yeah, brother, well, Africa, you you you, you raise a, you raise a very interesting paradox. I mean, clearly, when you look at the situation confronting African people, clearly. Uh, we're under siege, and of course, the the question is, do we recognize that we're under under siege? Well, for a lot of us, we don't recognize we're under siege, and to to to, to a large extent, you know, this notion in terms of citizenship uh, sort of um, predominates in the minds of some of our people, and so so therefore, they're not looking in terms of liberation. What they're looking at in terms of how could they better serve the system, and so it's clearly it's a paradox. But one thing, brother, I have to point out that you know. You know, when we talk about in terms of being in the room and making decisions, don't be surprised if you got some Africans sitting in the room making these uh, acquiescing to these decisions who who are not if not going along with the decisions. Uh, you know, um, you know, you know, often, you know, like for instance we talk about NASA and we never even knew uh that there are a lot of African scientists involved in, 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 in terms of NASA in terms of putting people in you know you know in outer space. You know, we don't know that. So I'm not. I wouldn't be surprised to find out that there were Africans in the room in the CIA, the FBI, um, in the uh, pharmaceutical companies. You know, who, when they make these decisions are being made, who's sitting there listening to them and saying, "Well, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not my check, so I'm, I'm not going to say anything." So I, it's a problem. It's a problem. But again, unless we have you know organization which combats, uh, as Brother Anthony talks about, of uh, the lack of uh, the lack of of, of, of information. Until we have the situation, then what happens is that people simply uh, gravitate toward the information which they provided. Of course, the information that the, the system provides is not geared toward empowerment. It's geared toward to maintain your subjugation. And, but we have to come to the realization. It's very tough to do that. Uh, if we can get our people, if our people can fundamentally understand that we're at war, then, you know, that, that would be a, a, great, a great achievement. If we can just get our people to understand that we're at war. For a lot of our people, if you tell them, you know, we're at war, then they're confused. Like, what do you mean we're at war? I, I, I don't understand the context in which you make that statement. And then you proceed to explain why you're at war, and they're like, mm, okay, yeah, okay, you know, and that's that. And I think this, I think this, this notion in terms of, you know, that, um, you know, uh, that access to, 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 to money sort of, uh, sort of predominates people's thinking in terms of, you know, if you compare that to uh, – you know, uh, you know, to liberation. It's much easier to go along and get that paper, get that money, than it is to actually talk in terms of liberation. So it's a paradox, Brother Africa. I don't know what to say. If they come and get us tomorrow and say, okay, y'all taking the shot, even though we know the shot is not good for us, we know it's going to do us real harm, you know, you know we, can, we can resist individually. That's all we can do. But, of course, when we resist individually, what happens? They just overpower you, you know, put you in prison and give you the shot anyway. Uh, you know, so unless you got uh, a, a group consciousness in terms of what we're up against, and we do fight, I mean, we fight back collectively, your odds in terms of minimizing, you know, the potential abuse from these immunization shots are almost nil. So it's a paradox, brother Africa. So yeah, it's a paradox. It's what you know. It's one of the things that you know uh, we've been talking about since we've been we brought to this since we brought to this country. You know, why is it that some of us we 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 get together and we 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 we, we strategize in terms of being free? Well, many of us still running and in, 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 uh, in, uh, related to the, to, the, to the person who was oppressing us. So it's a paradox. I mean, why does that exist? We, of course, it would be great if every African in American society, African throughout the world, would say, listen, we have to wake the hell up and we have to work together. We have to because the challenge before us 
It's, it's systematic and it's international. And so, therefore, we must wake up and we must understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. And we must be committed to what we're doing. And then no longer can we say that, you know, material things is going to define who I'm as a human being. Because I understand if I allow material things to define me, then I recognize those people in position to hurt me are also in position to determine whether or not I get those physical things or not. So it's a paradox, Brother Africa. So how do we get people to come to that realization? I mean, but that, that is a challenge. Well, I, I definitely agree with everybody and, and definitely a great uh, perspective and also a great question. And my, my one of my questions that I will ask going into it, you know, even to myself, if us and, and our engagement with religion, because it, it seems to me that obviously revolutionary might not be so foreign to black people or it shouldn't be so far. You understand? If these are times of war, you understand? We should be thinking in a militant fashion. We should be thinking about, hey, someone is coming to attack. What should we be doing? We should be standing on guard. We should be doing a thing. And this is, uh, you know, it's, it's been a thing that our people, we've had movements. We, we've asked this question. And to sit and, and, and think and still ask questions, if this European actually wants us dead, if, you know, Bill Gates is actually trying to, oh, this thing is very, very real. And it's a one that is calling on our solidarity. That is what everybody on this line has spoken of. It is also a one that when we're going into this, we can't mistake ourselves and just look at ourselves as American people and thinking that, hey, we're going to get everything that's allotted to, quote, unquote, the American people, because we know how America feels about black folks. That's, e- that's even post the black president, right? So when we are talking about the, the, what is going to segue uh, coming into, you know, this play, and basically we are in that place, what is going to help us be stronger in the upcoming uh, months, the upcoming years, as they are set to roll this out, you know, and, and like the the brother said, that when somebody is coming, rather than we fighting as an individual, it has to be a situation where, hey, we all are going to go or we all are. And, and, and this is something else that, uh, you know, some of us, we may not like, but, um, you know, going back, going back home, going back to Africa, you know, even looking at, hey, well, we got readings. African readings from, from, from our ancestors, from, from the Neturu, from the Orisha, we got these readings years ago that told us, hey, our ancestors were going to lay the smack down on America. You understand? So we do know that a lot of these children here, they have a price to pay as it relates to the things that have been done to us. So it is definitely a time that should be calling on us to go back and establish our senses. Even whether it be the the white man, the cracker put us in home at home, or we're having to be quarantined, let us go back inward, and 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 take this time to love family, to embrace family. You understand? So if, if they take one, they take us all, so we can have this mentality. Black man, don't be coward. Now is not the time that you need to be running or trying to put on a dress. You understand? This is why it's not not the time to be putting on dresses. This is why it's not the time to be talking about, hey, why are you going to kill your your brother? Why are you going to go out there and rape your sister? 
oh, I'm over here trying to get some booty. Okay, go go get you some mat. Go marry your woman. You understand? Go marry your queen and, and talk about uh, creating some children together. These are things that we have to start speaking about. And 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 and, and I'm not shooting a gun at anybody, but coming away from the quote unquote religious mentality. Like, well, hey, I'm just going to pray about it, and Jesus is going to come work it out. Because I grew up in the church, right? And it was a thing that, well, hey, I ain't even going to worry about no war. I ain't even going to worry about protecting myself or trying to eat the right things. I'm just going to pray about it, and Jesus is going to take care of the rest. This is a mentality where we have to understand that, hey, we're going to have to get off our seats and do nothing. It's okay to pray. It's all right to be spiritual, but we're going to have to understand the importance of implementing these things in real time and in physical, our, our real life, hardcore. So, um, you know, it's, it's going to take that. We're going to have to have men's society or women's society inside our community. Instead of watching Love and Hip Hop and Housewives, we're going to have to sit down and, you know, come over here to Africa on the move where we got about 20 or 50 people now sitting down. This is how we're going to get prepared for this vaccine. How we talk about, hey, exit strategies. Well, let's go to Cuba. Let's go to Africa. Let's go somewhere. Let's let's get away. You understand? And, and, and these, these are things because, as you guys, everybody basically is common knowledge. Everybody's spoken on it. You know, it, that time is coming. That time is coming, and when if we know – the European, we know imperialism as we know it. it, it you know, it definitely starts to, 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 to you know, they're talking about giving out money now. They're talking about giving out money, so now watch out for the hook because they're just trying to, you know, make you make make you watch watch something on the on the left, and then they're gonna hit you with the with the hook. They're gonna come and put us to sleep. So we have to be mindful of what the, the times they have up ahead of us. Panelists, before we close uh, close out tonight, I would like to hear everyone respond to this to this narrative, and then we'll be making our final statement for tonight. We want to try to give our people not only something to think about, but try to at least start using what information that they have received and use our common sense. There are different methods in terms of how you can oppress, how you can kill people. You know. Some can use it for medicine. They can inject you. Some can use it to viruses where, you know, they can create scenarios where you can enhance the chance of, of catching it. But the bottom line is that different forms are doing the same thing. Now, we know according to the information that has been published by mass media, we're in the context of we're inside the United States and probably apply around the world where you find our communities, is that less than 1% of the people they have been tested. And I'm not even sure even that 1% been tested correctly. They also have stated that you can walk around with this particular virus and not knowing that you have it. Just knowing those two pieces of information, would it make any sense now in the next two to three weeks to let people go back to work? No. Panelists. But this is what they're talking about doing. This is the consequences of what may happen. And to me, this seems like a conscious choice by the government 
to create, create the scenario of even more people dying. And when we talk about more people dying, particularly we talk about people in communities that never had access to health. We really talk about a lot of citizens, African people. But yet you will be compelled to either go back to work and risk catching it if you don't already have it, or if you don't do it, you can't work. So again, another paradigm, how do we deal with that? Possibilities, which is which is within the range of the next two to three weeks, panelists. Y'all respond to that? Yes. Um again, uh let's see well well let's see a couple of things are going on. One, um if you if you if you follow the information carefully, a lot of Africans are dying from this disease. And because of the inadequate health care that is existing in our communities, not only in the US but internationally, a lot of us are probably walking around with the, this disease and, and don't even know it. And also in addition that a lot of us have underlying health issues that none of us are not that some of us aren't aren't aren't, aren't aware we're dealing with. Because they don't always present visible symptoms, things like diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, uh, stress, etc. And uh, so you know, so we got a, we, we've got a, 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 a whole lot of health issues that we're dealing with that are underdiagnosed because of the poor quality of health care that exists in our, in our communities and has always existed since we've been on this side of the ocean. But uh, let's see, but the solution to, to that is, um, you know, is knowledge, sharing information, and getting organized. And, uh, and uh, education and organization are keys to overcoming this. But the thing about it, though, we've got to realize that we are Africans, period, no matter where we're at in the world. And and I think that would uh, go a long way towards uh, us coming to a solution. Right now, we, a lot of us are still confused about what our identity is. And our enemy keeps us in that state of confusion. That's by design. But we've got to overcome that. And it becomes very important how effectively we share information with each other. You know, Brother Anthony, one one of, one of the things I often think about, you know, these pre-existing conditions that you talked about, you know, the diabetes, high blood pressure, heart problems, and so forth and so on. I'm just wondering if maybe perhaps that's the narrative that the the the, the those in positions of power want to put out, and so doing justify you know the deaths of African people, because if you think that African people have these pre-existing conditions disproportionately, then our deaths will be understandable. So I'm very concerned in terms of perhaps maybe that's what they want us to believe. Uh, so that's something you know something that we you know we, we have to continue to look into. But I'm also very skeptical when they keep talking about pre-existing conditions, and it's just what happened. All these pre-existing conditions happen to impact African people. So I'm like, hmm, very interesting that this that uh, this narrative they keep putting they keep putting this narrative forward. But in any event, uh, you know, as, uh, you know, brother, I don't know what to say. It's just it's it's just. You know, it's, it's, it's all a paradox. It's, it's all a question in terms of you know, um, you know, in the face of in the face of you know uh, mounting attacks. The question is, 
what are we going to do? And, you know, it's, you know, but we have to do it collectively. And I just close with that. Well, I will say this. Oh, absolutely. Definitely agreeing with the, the, the brother Haki and the brother, um, Anthony, um, definitely great, uh, remarks. And, and I'm at a place where it is encouraging us. If it weren't the coronavirus, it will be another virus. And at the end of the day, I definitely agree with Brother brother Anthony. Our lack of knowing who we are is the bigger virus. So even if we were healthy and clean, we still don't know who we are. So that is basically the, the one of the greatest things that you could do to yourself is lose your knowledge of who you are. And I think what our ancestors are setting upon us um, with you know, our ancient or our old traditions, which fed or gave birth to many other religions, you understand, our forms of spirituality, what our ancestors were doing via the cosmology, via the the stories of our seal, of our, uh, our set, Haru, we hear these names, you understand, this is knowing about our relationship to the essential element. And this is what this time is calling upon us to do, is go back to the essential elements, to gather ourselves, the essential elements within ourselves. You understand? We talked about those things that were existing yesterday. And I can believe that us as a people, we are suffering from a lot of those health conditions because we suffered yesterday. We were eating the slave diet. They tried uh, uh, <laughs> upon time upon time to kill us, but we are still here. But like what lies dormant in our DNA are those things, are those things that we have to deal with. And until we come into the mirror, until we come into ourselves, gather ourselves, this is the only way we're going to deal with it. But going inwardly, as we're talking about going back and hitting that workforce, whatever you have to do to prepare for your family, make sure that you're spiritually equipped mentally equipped and also physically equipped don't be eating those doritos and uh honey buns and sweet cakes and thinking that you're going to defend uh, uh the common cold you understand it is very important to go and get some of that essential nourishment for our bodies and know what it is drink water you understand it's very important for us to do that i grew up around a whole lot of black folks and we don't like to drink water we rather have kool-aid we don't like to eat vegetables. We like to eat fried food. So these are things that the ancestors, Natera or nature itself, the forces of nature themselves are calling on us to do, calling out the importance of us establishing our family bonds. Call to your brother and make up. Call to your sister whom you haven't spoken with. Understand the essential importance of one another in order to beat this or any other thing that white imperialism might roll out at us. All right, panelists, what we're going to do right now, we'd like to thank everyone, our listening audience, Brother Obi, for his work that he has shared with us, dealing with uh, appeal as it relates to embracing Cuba. We'd like to thank everyone for their contribution to today's program. And right now, as we close out the series, part three, and look at the coronavirus pandemic in the U.S. and the world. Like each one, each one of y'all got some minutes, so y'all find the thoughts 
on this page. I'll start out with you, Brother Moses. Your final thoughts. Yes, um, thank you again. Um, it's been very interesting. Um, uh, Brother Opie uh, uh, definitely is organized and uh, on point, and um, it's just good to have panelists who are who are knowledgeable and uh, give insights into the, the subject matter. Uh, I'm continue to look forward to uh, studying more about these issues and uh, hopefully get more involved in in the solution to the problem. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Thank you, Brother Equani. Equani, your final thoughts for tonight. I think it's very important to uh, understand whom we've gotten our education from. You know, a lot of us, the, the majority of our lives, uh, even in the very language in which we speak, in that which we must must not hesitate to separate from. And a lot of time, as it relates to uh, being our ally or being our tie, we definitely have to question, you know, his agenda, because we know that the white man, his systems have never meant myself as a black man nor my black woman or my black family anywhere, especially here in America. This is why we still have to beg for our reparations and beg for our apology of yesterday. So we still see that this European is working like a fine-tuned machine and sticking his head out with the face of Donald Trump. So definitely we must be on guard and be on point and not, not go to sleep. And if you are... Thank you, my brother, for your contribution to today's program. And we need to go to Brother Haki. Brother Haki, your final thoughts. Yeah, you know the bottom line is that this 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 economy uh, is in free fall, and uh, we got to understand the implication of all that means. Back in 2008, they spent 1.3 trillion dollars in an attempt to stimulate the economy. Uh, it didn't work. Uh, currently, they spend two trillion dollars. Um, for the coronavirus uh, crisis, 2.3 trillion for business and 500 billion specifically for corporations. Now, all of this free money does nothing in terms of addressing the ills of people in society, which means that you got lots and lots of people in which the government simply doesn't care anything about. The question is, and we have to ask ourselves, particularly in the African community, what does that mean for us? If the government doesn't want us, it doesn't need us, then the question is, what does that mean for in terms of our longevity in society? And we have to seriously ask ourselves the question. If we conclude that that means that we're in serious trouble, then we've got to get organized, and, you know, we have to understand what the issues are, but more importantly, we have to become organized. And I close with that by saying, as always, encourage people, you know, to unravel the matrix because we're understanding the, the intricacies in terms of what's going on, then we're not in a position to, to strategize in terms of what we need to do in terms of moving forward in society. And you have a good night. Hey, panelists, before we go to Brother Anthony, I just want to share something with y'all and listen to one of you. It was recently shared with us just something to think about in terms of some of the dynamics that's going on with the pandemic We're inside of at least, they say, in the United States. There was a doctor shared some information with um, one of the sources that I had access to where they were told and they understand that this virus does not leave the human body 
even after death, until after 36 hours. And that's one of the reasons why many um, morticians refuse to um, take any bodies that came to that shop. So even this question how you're even dealing with, 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 with the dead is is of real interest and fascinating. Just think about that. I saw recently on the news where a lot of bodies are now, if you never claim them, they're just taking these bodies and dumping them in big burial grounds. Hmm. Good point. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight? Yes, my final thought for tonight is um, is that we must organize as never before. Uh, our conditions are getting worse, and uh, the ultimate solution to our problems is Pan-Africanism. The total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism and to learn more about Pan-Africanism, as well as about the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, we urge you to participate in African Liberation Day slash Palestine Day, not Bar Day, scheduled for May 23rd, 2020. Uh, please uh, check out our website at www.aprp-gc.org. Our theme for this year is not yet Uhuru, not yet freedom, not yet liberation. And uh, and, uh, we're, and uh, we're in a struggle against uh, women's oppression, neocolonialism, Zionism, and settler colonialism. And for more information, you can contact us at 202-246-4896 or visit our website, www.aprp-gc.org. Thanks. We'd like to thank you, Brother Anthony, and everybody for their contribution to today's program. And my final thoughts for the night is that probably the best way we can deal with this problem is take the lessons of Brother Kwame Ture, where you talk about the necessity of the conscious making the unconscious conscious. We'll leave you with Brother Kwame Ture on that subject on matter. Of this brother, and he's still blazing a trail, even to them. So he has an eternal flame. His flame don't burn out. Some of y'all flames burn out. His flame is still strong. Let us all get on our feet, please. And let's give a warm round of applause to a great hero, all the way from Guinea, all the way from the mother country, our brother, our friend, Brother Kwame Ture, Brother Kwame Ture, as he comes down. Let's give it up as he comes down the aisle. Brother Kwame Ture, this is a historic occasion for us to bring our brother back again to the slave theater. Let's give a warm round of applause to our brother. Brother Kwame Ture, who's been on the fire line, who shook up America in 1966, when he hollered, Black Power! 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 
Black power. 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 What time is it? What time is it? What time is it? What time is it? All right. Brother Kwame Duray. Let's give it up. Brother Kwame Duray. We want to thank you for your warm welcome. You must excuse us for uh, sitting, but we have uh, some pain in our legs. <coughs> and uh, we're trying as much as possible to stay off of it while we're doing some tests with the uh, doctors. Of course, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party is always happy to be with the United African Movement. Uh, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party is always happy to be with the United African Movement. And uh, there are three members of uh, three other members of our central committee who are present. Uh, Brother Ron Gibbs is here, no? Brother Ron Gibbs is here. Yes. Sister Mawina Kuyate, who's also the head of the All African Women's Revolutionary Union. And of course, we're always proud of our living history. Uh, this brother who was uh, come through many struggles, was the chair of the Black Panther Party in New York during the rough times and since joined the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. I've had the honor of working with him for almost 30 years, a member of our central committee, the youngest member, David Brothers. <laughs> Thank you. Uh -huh. Of course, we are always uh, honored to be with the uh, United African Movement because the world is divided into many, many different categories. But one of the categories which interests those of us who are concerned with advancing humanity the most is that between the conscious and the unconscious. This uh, division between the conscious and the unconscious must be properly understood. 
The people instinctively love freedom and they will instinctively fight for freedom. But you cannot win freedom on instincts. You can only win freedom on reason. Therefore, the unconscious are those who react on instinct. The conscious are those who react on reason. The job of the conscious is to make the unconscious conscious. Let us make a simple example. I think it was in 1992, after one more brutal beatings too many, the African population in Los Angeles, California revolted, rose up in righteous rebellion. This was instinctively revolutionary. Instinctively in the sense that it wasn't planned. Instinctive in the sense that it was this reaction to brutality. And this instinctive revolutionary act was very costly to American capitalism. It even had to bring in the American army, very costly. But since it was on instinct, it had no reason, nothing to direct it, it would spin itself out. Those who participated were largely unconscious. We must come to understand that the overwhelming majority of our people are unconscious. But just because they're unconscious, you shouldn't think they don't want freedom. As a matter of fact, sometimes the unconscious is quicker willing to give their lives in struggle than the conscious. These are simple facts. Would you imagine what it would be like when we are conscious rebellious, when we consciously organize to rebel in Los Angeles with reason? I mean making supply lines, making sure armaments are there, having hospital aids, having fire brigades, just like they do even in Ireland. Nothing big, just a little planning. Just a little planning. This is what we want to speak to you about this evening. Making the unconscious conscious. Now we must say from the very beginning, the only, underline the word only, the only route to consciousness is through struggle. Now, for example, we've shown you the unconscious struggle. Those who rose up in righteous rebellion against the state police in Los Angeles, they were, they were consciously involved in struggle. They were involved in struggle, unconscious, but involved in struggle. The conscious must understand precisely what their task is, and we've said this two years ago here, we repeat it. Ours is not to teach the people to be conscious, but to make them conscious of their unconscious behavior. Our task is not to teach the conscious to be, to teach the unconscious to be conscious, but to make them conscious of their unconscious behavior. Because unconsciously, instinctively, they seek freedom. What we must do is make them conscious. Look, you want freedom anyway. Let's be serious. Let's sit down. Let's plan it. Let's wait protracted war and let's tear down the system and walk on to liberation. It's as simple as that. This aspect of the unconscious becoming conscious is linked to mobilization and organization, something we mentioned last year. We must make clear distinctions between mobilizers and organizers. To be an organizer, you must be a mobilizer, but being a mobilizer doesn't make you an organizer. 
Much confusion is to be found here. Malcolm X was a great mobilizer. He was a great organizer. Martin Luther King was a great mobilizer. He was not a great organizer. These facts can be easily seen from King and Malcolm. When Malcolm went to a place, he left a mosque. When King went to demonstrations, he broke down desegregation and he moved on. As a matter of fact, King was not concerned with organization to the point that even though he was the most popular Baptist preacher in America without the shadow of a doubt, and probably beyond the shadow of a doubt the most loved, he could not become president of the Baptist National Baptist Association. A convention. Yeah, so many of them. The National Baptist Convention. <laughs> As a matter of fact, if my memory serves me correctly now, and I remember it was Mohammed Speaks that uh, carried the article on the front page in 1964 when King tried to become president of the National uh, Baptist Convention, there was so much confusion there that a minister was actually put, pushed off the stage and died in the trouble. Yeah. And of course, King lost. The man who won was a reactionary man by the name of Jackson. He never did nothing for the people, never cared about the people, just was a pork chop minister who used their money to put gas in his big Cadillac. But he was organized. But he was organized. We say that we must come to know the difference between mobilization and organization because the enemy will use mobilization to demobilize us. Mobilization is very easy. Very, very easy. Because since we're people who are instinctively ready to respond against acts of injustice, anytime there's one little act of injustice, we can blow it up and we'll find people who come and make some mass demonstration around it. Miss Sally lost a job. Let's rally. She'll get a job back. People will come and rally. So-and-so got kicked out of school because the teacher's unjust. The unjust. The people will come and rally. They will come to rally at issues. And this is what mobilization does. It mobilizes people around issues. Those of us who are revolutionary are not concerned with issues. We're concerned with the system. The difference must be properly understood. The difference must be properly understood. Mobilization usually leads to reform action, not to revolutionary action. If we would look scientifically at the October 16th million and more march, we would see clearly that this was a mobilized event, not an organized event. We must know clearly the difference between mobilization and organization. One of the characteristics of mobilization is that it is temporary. Organization is permanent and eternal. Clear differences must be made because the unconscious can usually be captured easily around one-issue items, around mobilization items, but it's hard to catch them around organization. But these unconscious must be brought to organization. We must transform mobilization to organization. We say the enemy will come and use mobilization to demobilize us. Many brothers and sisters who've been to the Million and More March will say to you, I was there. Well, what are you doing today, my sister? I was there. There weren't too many sisters out there, but you know, with a million brothers together, you know where I had to be. I was there. <laughs> and then, of course, you find brothers. Yeah, I was there. I was there. I helped you. What are you doing today, brother? If we're not careful, we allow mobilization to become events 
The struggle is never an event. It's a process, a continual, eternal process. We say it is our job to use mobilization to drive us to organization. You know our theme is organization. We want power. We don't want money. We don't want fame. We don't want fortune. We don't want popularity. We want power. Power. And power comes only from the organized masses. Power comes only from the organized masses. Therefore, since this is what we're concerned with, power, and we as a Pan-Africanist, we have every right to be concerned with it. Africa, after all, is the richest continent on the face of the earth. Properly organized, should be the most powerful continent on the face of the earth. Therefore, our drive towards power is clear. We want power, and we can only have power through the organized masses. Of course, capitalism, a system which in deforming our thinking always seeks to make it appear as if the organized masses is some unattainable goal. Even the other day when speaking to a sister who, uh, sister who's been involved in uh, activities over a period of years, she said, uh, Kwame Ture, uh, so you, when you say a mass party, what do you mean? I said, I mean a mass party. She said, but the APRP goes everywhere in England, they go in the Caribbean, in, uh, uh, in, uh, in the United States, in Africa, and they're always saying about a mass party. What do you mean? I said, every African in the world inside our party. She said, are you going to get that? I said, that's what I'm working for. And if I don't get it, my granddaughter going to get it. But I'm working for it. <coughs> Her disbelief comes from the fact that capitalism tells us that, well, you can be scientific about everything except human nature. That people are so different, they have such different tastes, such different ta-la-la-la, that you can't bring them together under the same roof. This is a lie. We will never tire of saying it. Capitalism does not lie some of the time. It lies all of the time. When it tells the truth, it's a result of a double lie. <coughs> it's a logical fact. It's a logical fact. So capitalism has this belief that you can't organize all the people around the same thing. That's not true. You can organize all the people around one thing, truth. Now what capitalism will try to make it appear as if the truth is not one truth, but anybody can have the truth. This is stupidity. Nobody's born with the truth inside of them. If they were, they wouldn't need to live. We come to know the truth from outside of us. Some people think that they know the truth because they were born to know the truth. That's a lie. You know the truth from constant struggle against lies. That's how you know the truth. Constant struggle against lies. For example, they try to make it appear as if we Africans will not arrive at uniting ourselves even around, even the question around our identity. Well, you may call some of them Africans, but some call themselves black, some still call themselves colored, some, that's fact, they do that. But this is because they've been miseducated by a system which seeks to keep us divided, and this is the truth. And this is the truth. Obviously, we cannot be all of us so many different things. We must be one thing. 
Of course, for our party, there's no question. As for the United African Movement, we're Africans. End of discussion. End of discussion. This struggle is not an easy struggle. The struggle to go from Negro to black was a difficult struggle. Capitalism did everything to roll it back. Even had us confused. I'm not black, look at me, I'm brown colored. Yes. I'm not black, I got Indian blood in me. Oh. What nonsense they didn't have us say, just run away from the truth. We told them then, it is more difficult to go from Negro to black than it is to go from black to African. Many people criticized us for our efforts. Oh, in the 1970s, we had our last press conference. We said, we're going to put the word Africans on the lip of every African in America, and we're not going to use the capitalist media press. And we have done it, and we have not used the capitalist media press. As a matter of fact, the capitalist media press, in trying to stop us from going to Africans in America, tried to throw out African Americans. They did it. We saw the whole scene. It's our job. We followed it carefully. Of course, they want to say African-Americans. Of course, that keeps us exactly where we are. If you're African-American, you're obviously not the same like an African-Kenyan. And certainly not the same like an African-Brazilian. And certainly not the same like an African-Trinidadian, etc., etc., etc. But once you're just African, ain't no question. Ain't no question. <laughs> You African, yeah, where you were born? Trinidad. You African, yeah, where were you born? Uganda. You African, yeah, where were you born? Egypt. You African, yeah, all Africans. Once you have proper identity, one of your biggest problems is solved. Because a people must know their national interests. A people must have a clear understanding of their national interest. The job of American imperialism is to let us think that our national interest is within the confines of American imperialism. That's why black American, African American, anything but make sure they hold on to America. When the conscious comes to understand that they're Africans born in America, Africans living in America, their whole outlook changes completely. America no longer becomes their world. Of course, this is a difficult task because America convinced everyone that she is the world. I'm sometimes amazed when I come in this country and hear them say world news. Here they come. World news. Today, President Clinton said... <clears throat> world news. Today, Newt Greenwich said... World news, those who's running for president can't. It's like, you know, it's like their World Football Association. <laughs> no, nobody played but them. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, the first conscious act in organizing our people is to let them know who they are. If you think you're an American, you will fight to protect the interests of capitalist America. If you know you ain't no American, you fight to destroy every aspect of American capitalism. <laughs> I 
Our people have been unconsciously moving towards Africa. You know, I am uh, very fortunate. I spend a lot of time with our people, and I always stay with the poor. I stay with the poor because the poor, they are pure. I mean, the poor will fight and give their lives for positions which they're incapable of occupying. They shock me sometimes with their naivety and their honesty. No wonder they can so easily be exploited. I remember one sitting in Ghana at the house of uh, Akbar Mohammed, who's the uh, international representative of the Nation of Islam. And uh, there was a lot of people in the house, so I walked outside the gate, and I sat down, there's a little kennel there, and a concrete, I sat down by the kennel. The gardener next door came and sat down next to me. We began talking. So we talked naturally about Ghana. We talked about Ghana, we talked about Nkrumah. So after a while he said, were you born in Ghana? Are you Ghanaian? I said, no, I wasn't born in Ghana. I just live in Guinea. He said, but you know a lot about uh, Ghana. I said, well, yeah, I did a lot of study of the Ghana Revolution. I didn't tell him that I was the uh, political secretary of Kwame Nkrumah when Nkrumah was co-president in Guinea. I didn't even tell him who I was. You know, Kwame Ture meant nothing to him, just another name. After talking with the man for about half an hour, you know what the man said to me? He doesn't even know me now. He said, you know what? He said, listen, I only went to third standard. That's like about third grade. He said, I don't have no education, but people like me, we could fight and put people like you in power and you'll help us. Yes. I've seen it everywhere. In the South, I used to see people die for positions they couldn't occupy. As a matter of fact, people who couldn't get to the university died so students who had the ability could get to the university. People who couldn't vote died so people become mayors. It is these pure, poor, that we must be concerned with. These are the ones we must organize. These are the real makers of history. Forget the ones who are always talking and doing nothing. Get the poor, the pure. What's their movement? The instincts are always correct. Our people have been unconsciously moving more and more towards Africa. Of that there isn't the slightest question. I saw it years ago. In the mid-1970s, I was going through Mississippi. I'd spent the 60s there and visited a sister whom I know was very active in the movement. She'd now been married and had a child. So the husband and her were very excited. They wanted to show me the child, as any uh, parents would be. And of course, me too, I was excited because I knew as a little girl, I wanted to see uh, my granddaughter, if you will. So uh, when she came, I held the door. I said, what's the name? She said, uh, Ajola. I said, Ajola? She said, yes. I said, what does it mean? She said, I don't know, I just made it up. Does it sound African? <laughs> this was in the mid-1970s in Mississippi. I remember in the 1970s, late 1970s, I saw a young man. He was wearing a red, black, and green jacket. I stopped the man, young boy. I said, young blood, what's this uh, red, black, and green? He said, those are our colors. I said, what do you mean, our colors? He said, man, these are our colors. You don't know our colors? I said, no, what do you mean our colors? He said, man, red for blood, green for the lamb, black for us. You don't know this? I said, no, I don't know this. He said, man, where are you coming from? He started to walk away. I said, brother, have you ever heard of a man called Marcus Garvey? He said, Marcus Garvey, who is he? I said, he's the one who gave you the colors. <laughs> the unconscious are moving towards Africa. It is job of the conscious to make them conscious of their unconscious actions. Since our people are moving towards Africa, 
it behooves us clearly to come seriously and to organize properly this movement and putting Africa as its primary. This is the job of the conscious. But the conscious gets their sustenance from the unconscious. I am certain that most of the brothers and sisters attending the Million and More March were unconscious. Unconscious in the sense that they do not consciously try to develop themselves in a systematically basis, on a day-to-day -day basis, to make a contribution to the people. But the milieu which that unconscious mass created now makes it possible for the conscious mass to make this unconscious mass quickly conscious. Quickly conscious. And this is our task. I had the honor, when working for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in 1968 in Washington, D.C., after having served as one year as the chair of the organization, of being with the stick team that helped develop the first black united front in this country. It came out of Washington, D.C. It was well organized. After leaving for Africa, and uh, much confusion, mainly with the infusion of money into the black united front, the front fell apart. Moving to the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, we have done everything in our possibility to create an African United Front. What do we mean by an African United Front? We are saying that those organizations which are politically on the front lines fighting for our people, like the NAACP, like the Urban League, like the Nation of Islam, etc., etc., should come together and form a united front. This United Front is a very simple thing now, a very simple task. All it means is that we come together and have common meetings. And if we hear one attacking the other newspaper, we don't respond to the newspaper. We telephone each other and ask them. Our party has been doing much work on this. Because we're among comrades who work, we will give you some of our files, which is not made public. Only here are we doing so. The Nation of Islam was an observer at the Washington, D.C. Black United Front. Although invited to join, they felt that at that time they wanted to observe. They were allowed full participation except voting, which they themselves accepted as observers. That is, they could fully participate in every level of the discussion. When the United Front broke up, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party quickly moved to put together a united front. We had brought together Mr. Roy Wilkins, who was alive at that time. This was in 1972. Uh, Vernon Jordan. Who was before Vernon Jordan? Vernon Jordan, the one who died in Africa. Whitney Young. No, it was jo I'm sorry, Whitney Young had died. It's correct. It was Vernon Jordan. Vernon Jordan was then at the Urban League. Of course, uh, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad was alive, and he was sending uh, Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan as his representative. Jesse Jackson was representing Push. Dorothy Hyde, the uh, National Council of Negro Women. Reverend uh, Abernathy, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, in his core, and we represented the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. My brothers and sisters, I'll tell you the truth. You must never get discouraged in struggle. You will build something, and the enemy will knock it down. And you'll have to start from zero. But as we say in our party, we're starting from a higher 
qualified zero. You must never be discouraged in struggle. As a matter of fact, the easiest way for the enemy to take you out is to make you frustrated and disgusted. Oh, I went to that meeting. They ain't doing nothing. I ain't got no time for them. Until they get serious, I ain't going there. What you doing? I ain't doing nothing. And they really think that they're intelligent. They think they've made a great statement. So you must not be discouraged, but the enemy's job is to discourage us. We did a lot of work trying to get that meeting together. A lot of work. A lot of work. And because of a Zionist plot, because of a Zionist plot, they wrecked the entire meeting in 48 hours. The meeting was wrecked, but we were not. <laughs> and we are revolutionaries. You knock it down, we're coming back stronger. We accepted defeat, we licked our wounds, we pursued our battle. We continued with this aspect of it. During that time, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad passed. Before his death, you know, death has robbed me of so many things in life. Really has, really has. The most recent one was I have a brother who's in jail in uh, Florida for killing a white policeman. Uh, this brother has been isolated in jail. Nobody writes him, uh, so he has a lot of problems. And uh, his father and I knew each other from struggling days back in the 60s in Dayton. Asked me to write him. I wrote him. So you know when brothers are in jail, they ain't got nothing to do. So he writes me a letter every day. And uh, I respond to all his letters because he's in jail, you know. And uh, last year, when uh, speaking on telephone, I told him, I think I have everything careful. I I'm going to speak to uh, Bill Kunstler, and I'm sure Bill Kunstler will look at the case. In March of last year, I had lunch with Bill Kunstler and, uh, in New York here, and Bill Kunstler agreed to take the case. And he said, but you know, I'm just a little bit busy now. Give me about two or three months, and then send me a letter, and I'll pick up the case. So I waited two or three months, and when I wrote the letter, before the letter arrived, uh, Kunstler was dead. So death has robbed me of many uh, political victories in life and created more work for me. But I'm a revolutionary. I accept it because I know my death is going to create a lot of work for others. <laughs> so it's robbed me of a lot. The Honorable Elijah's, uh, Mohammed's death robbed me of a, robbed the All African Peace Revolution Party of a golden chance to uh, create the United Front. Of course, you know, when the Nation of Islam came up, there was first uh, Wallace Dean Mohammed, the son of the uh, Honorable Elijah Mohammed, and then, you know, there was a little uh, discussion, and uh, finally, uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan decided to uh, return with the original uh, theories and actions of the Honorable Elijah Mohammed. When Minister Louis Farrakhan first came out, of course, now I'm blessed that you know, I've known Minister Louis Farrakhan for over 30 years, and worked with him for over 30 years. Of course, we're not in the press all the time, but we're in contact all the time. And uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan and I discussed much, step by step. Of course, the only thing I had in my mind was the African United Front. That's all I want. And uh, Minister Farrakhan said, okay, he sees it, he understands it, but he needs to get a little bit stronger. Fine. Uh, in 1982, I, our party made an assessment, and uh, we said, okay, the nation of Islam is strong enough now to do the work for the African United Front. We cannot do it, the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, because uh, 
From the time they see us, we tell them we're revolutionary, we're socialist, we ain't bending, we're anti-Zionist. You can do what you want, that's your problem. You understand? So we don't bend. But the Honorable uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan, he's charming and, you know, he's sentimental. Minister can quote Bibles so he can sit down with preachers and all these others, etc. So after observing his movements, uh, the All African People's Revolutionary Party mandated me to go and uh, visit uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan and to give him the uh, files of the African United Front and tell him that it was his responsibility to call the front. Of course, it was a task that I enjoyed undertaking. I hadn't seen him in some time, and uh, I had a beautiful day. We spent the entire day at his house there in Chicago. You know, he just uh, separated uh, from uh, uh, Dean Wallace Mohammed and his forcibly coming back. And uh, I took for him some old copies of Mohammed Speaks. Now, if you look at the old copies of Mohammed Speaks, every middle page that you open had two black hands reaching across the oceans calling for a united front. Every, uh, every issue of Mohammed Speaks. We must know our history, and we will not, never be ungrateful to those who taught us. The Honorable Elijah Mohammed has taught me an awful lot, and I know he's taught our people an awful lot, and for that alone, I'll be forever grateful to him. Minister Farrakhan agreed to take the program. He had no choice. I told him, this is your program. This is what your leader says you're supposed to do. Here, my leader is your leader. And you say you're following his footsteps, you know, and he was getting ready to do it. He didn't do it. Here's your chance. You're supposed to do what he didn't do, you know. So, of course, Farrakhan had no choice. He had to accept it. We were well prepared. Everything was in proper order to have, finally, once again, our African United Front. By... 19, uh, when was uh, Jesse first talking about running for president? Was well, 1984. When did uh, Farrakhan make the alliance with him? November 83. So by 82, I left me. I went back to Africa. Everything was moving. I was in contact with uh, Minister Farrakhan. Our party people in contact, feeding us step by step. I came back uh, in early 1983. I met with uh, Minister Farrakhan. I explained to him uh, precisely the steps that we thought we could help in bringing the African United Front together. After some time, he asked that we have a meeting late in the year, probably around September, October. I'm telling the truth exactly what was said at the meeting. Minister Farrakhan said to me, he said, uh, at that time, uh, Jesse Jackson had declared he was going to run for presidency, and he was under a lot of threats, you know. And I certainly thought that some crazy whitey was going to pop him, you know. But I have no problem with it. My life is on the line all the time. I put my life on the line for one thing. You put your life on the line for another thing. I ain't got no problem with it. You know, so Minister Louis Farrakhan came to see me. He said, you know, and he's very clever, Minister Farrakhan. He's very clever. When he's already, he wants to soften up, he comes, he always plays that violin for you. Oh, Brother Kwame, you're my younger brother. But you know, you are so profound in political analysis. You surpass us all, but even though I am your older brother, I must come and seek advice from you. <laughs> he's rough, you know, he's rough on that violin. <laughs> he sings some sweet songs on that violin. <laughs> so, of course, after seeking my advice, he came to seek my advice. He said, I want to make a decision. I said, what's that decision? He said, I want to put the FOI 
at uh, the disposition of Jesse Jackson to protect him. I said, well, if you want to do that, that's your decision. He said, well, you don't seem enthusiastic about it. I said, well, I'm not. <laughs> he said, well, uh, Jesse Jackson might get killed. I said, he probably will get killed. He said, don't you think we need to protect him? I said, that's your decision. It's your FOI. You know, he said, so now he saw that it was getting serious. He said, uh, you know, he's clever. He's clever. Because he'll switch on you fast. You know, if, not, if you don't switch with him, you'll be in back gear while he's in front gear. You're already saying yes when you start, thought you were saying no. Yeah, he's rough. He said, well, uh, I bet if you were uh, being hounded and attacked by uh, people, you'd want the FOI to protect you. I reminded him very slowly and very carefully, Minister Farrakhan, when I was elected chair of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the first public meeting I had as chair was a meeting with the Honorable Elijah Mohammed in his house in Chicago where I spent 15 hours. In fact, it was here that I met Muhammad Ali for the first time. This is way back. This is before, well, all you old people, so you have before you were born. We were talking about 1966 here, easily. 30 years ago? Yeah. At the end of the meeting, of course, you know I'm a young man. I'm, I'm 26 years old at this time, you know, 26. I've heard the Honorable Elijah Muhammad all my life. What am I going to say to this man? This man used to raise me up, you understand? This man taught me things, gave me courage. I said, he's saying that on the radio? Is he crazy? Yeah, he's a white devil. That's what I said. They ain't nothing but white devils. That's what they, yeah. Yes. He'd tell the truth right out there. He wouldn't bite his tongue for nothing. You know, and uh, I reminded Honorable uh, Elijah, uh, the Minister Farrakhan, I said, at the end of the day, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad looked at me. I was sitting directly across from his table. He said, son, he said, the devil wants you. I said, yes, sir. He said, son, the devil is out to get you. I said, yes, sir. He said, son, you must be careful. I said, yes, sir, I'll be very careful all my life. I've been working in a, a, dying, a mine pit among the enemy, and I'm older now. I have more experience. So he said, they're mean. You know, I said, yes, sir, I know they're mean. He said, they're going to get you. I said, yes, sir. He said, so, son, I'm going to put the FBI at your the FOI at your disposition. Everywhere you go, I'm going to send out an order that the FOI must protect you. Now, you know, this was really too much for me, you know. So I started, I said, well, sir, thank you, you know, but you know, the FOI is so busy. I'm so busy. I'm running here and there. This will be such a task for them, really. I thank you, sir. I really appreciate it, sir. And I, you know, I go through all this humble pie about thank you, but I don't need it. You know what he said? He said, son, I wasn't asking you. That's just what he told me. And if you go and look at pictures in the past, you see, everywhere I go, the FOI was there protecting me from the 60s. You would look and you would see that. So I reminded this to Minister Louis Farrakhan. I reminded him of it. And I said, Minister Farrakhan, the FOI will protect me, but I promise you they will never protect me because I want to be President of the United States of America. They might protect me because I want to rip up America, but never because I want to be President of America. Well, he saw that uh, his clever trick didn't go so well. So he backed up again. He said, well, uh, what do you think about the alliance? I said, it's a great mistake. He said, why? I said, because uh, Jesse Jackson is a Democrat first and foremost. The Democratic Party jumps to the tunes of the Zionists. 
While the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was a confrontational organization and confronted Zionism outright, the first place I read about the Palestinian struggle in this country was in the Mohammed Speaks newspaper. The Honorable Elijah Mohammed taught me about Palestine when no left-wing paper in this country did. And they talk about nationalism and chauvinism. Look at them. I saw pictures of Malcolm X shaking the hands of PLO representatives when the PLO was first organized in 1964. In Mohammed Speaks. In Mohammed Speaks. Therefore, I told him, I said, the Zionists, they hate us, but they know you the first. <laughs> so what I'm worried about is when they spoil the union and it splits, you understand, which side of the fence you going to be on? Because I know Jesse going to be with the Zionists. Because that's the Democratic Party. I'm just brutally honest with you. I'm telling you exactly what was said between us. We had a very frank discussion. After that discussion, I told him, what about the African United Front? He said, it's still good. Of course, me, myself, I knew with the thing with Jesse, it was problems. But in spite of obstacles, you must do your work. In spite of obstacles, you must persevere. I said, well, I want you to meet uh, Jesse ja Jax, uh, John Jacobs of the Urban League. He said, I've never met him. I said, I'd like you to meet him. He said, you can arrange a meeting? Will he meet Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.